Good morning, y'all. Hi, Jane. Shabbat shalom. How are you? Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good morning. I'm just trying to get things squared away here. You know how it is. Trying to get things rolling. Hi, Don. Hey, Jennifer. Good to see you. Hi, Tammy. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Donald. How are you? All right. Doing great. Let's see if we can get some other people on here. Shalom, Brother P. Shalom, shalom. It's Carla. Sorry, my hair is not. Oh, what? <laughs> you came <laughs> on with your hair not being done properly? What are you thinking? Shabbat shalom. Happy you're back. Oh, I'll tell you. Long flight. Long. Yes, you guys have a nice day. Shalom. Hi. Hey, Rob. Good to see you, brother. In case you guys ever make that trip, yeah, long. Long. You you know, you think it's long when you first hear about it, then you take the flight and you realize, oh, yeah, that's long. That's long. It is long. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Doug. Yeah. Or John. Amen. I do indeed. Yeah. But I can tell you, we had, um, it was a perfect flight. Just absolutely perfect. Amen. We got out of there. There wasn't a, there wasn't, for 10 hours, there wasn't a speck of, uh, there wasn't a speck of uh, turbulence the whole flight. Get some cash. Ten and a half hours. Mm, uh, yeah. And then a which was really sweet. And anyway, it was just all great. It was just great. So you got on the Cadillac airplane. What, what's that, Randall? You got on the Cadillac airplane. No, no. Actually, it wasn't Cadillac. It was just an old Airbus A330. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was just great. And of course, you know, uh, Jesse will tell you, we had such a fantastic, wonderful time in Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, you know what they say, parting is such sweet sorrow. Right. And, uh, you know, but uh, of course, you know, uh, um, we get back to, uh, we get back to where we live in an undisclosed location. <laughs> just at an un undisclosed location, just the other side of the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, we got here last night and it was um, not raining. It was not raining. And, you know, the temperature was about 55 and we kind of just rolled out the road, you know, and uh, got home with no difficulty, no problems, no nothing. And uh, came home to some guys doing some load work, but other than that, everything was good. And uh, so anyway, we have been, I just want to tell you, we were blessed going and blessed coming home. Shabbat shalom. Hi, I have a hi, Corey. How are uh, you back home? Yes. I'm back here in the in the uh, in the in the Iceland, not the Greenland. Okay. <laughs> you guys are in the Greenland. We're in the Iceland. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, actually, it's not icy yet, but it's getting there. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, guys. So here we are. Well, Yada Yahoo for your safe passage. 
Hey, hallelujah. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I got to tell you guys, hey, some of the stuff, if you don't mind my sharing a little bit, some of the things that we discovered while we were there uh, were just things that were reiterating, 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 you know. And of course, one of the things we talked about on uh, as we were preparing to leave was this business about the Church of Philadelphia, right? The Church of Philadelphia in Revelation, which says what? You know, uh, I'm going to, you know, you will not come under well, let's just pull it up so that we can see it. Because this is such an important thing for us in this time. Now, I had some people write me this morning that were saying, well, look, the, uh, uh, you know, there's some kind of a difficulty coming on the Christian world. Well, I think there may be a difficulty coming on the Christian world. And it may be an extreme difficulty, actually. However, for the church in Philadelphia, right? The angel of the called out assembly in Philadelphia said, right. These things says he that is holy. He that is true. He that has the key of David, not the key of Peter, the key of David. He that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. I know your works. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Christian church says works are irrelevant, right? You're not saved by works. But here the angel is saying, I know your works. And behold, I have set before you an open door. And no man can shut it. Why? For you have a little strength. Premise number one. Premise number two. You have guarded my word. And premise number three. You have not denied my name. And I can tell you, I'll tell you, let me tell you, that is the big deal. That's the big deal. And, you know, people don't want to, because if you recall, all the 600 churches, there's something in there written. I have this against you. I have that against you. I have this against you. But there's nothing against the Church of Philadelphia because they have guarded his word. They have yet a little strength. And they have not denied his name. Now, what we saw, we saw evidence of this all over Britain, of course. You know, some of the places we went were, like when we did the conference in Lutterworth, this was the home of Wycliffe. And so there's a Wycliffe Museum there. And, of course, Wycliffe is the one uh, who initiated the uh, uh, transcribing the Latin text into English. He initiated it. And his work was actually quite influential. He influ influenced a Czech fellow named Jan Hus. And Jan Hus uh, led a very strong Protestant movement pulling away from uh, Catholicism. He led a very strong Protestant movement. And when he did, this pulling away from Catholicism resulted in him being declared anathema. And the Czech government got together, the king, and killed 40,000 of his followers and burned him in a huge bonfire down in the middle of uh, Wenceslas Square, which is, you know, the very center of Prague, if you've ever been to Prague. And I've had the, I had the misfortune of going to a church in Slovakia called the Church of Bones. And in this church, they have the bones of these Protestants and they have lampshades built out of their bones, and they have structures built out of their bones, and they have piles of skulls heaped in the corner. These were all people that were deemed by the church not to be buried on sacred ground, not to be buried on sacred ground.
was because, of course, being buried on sacred ground was something the church could withhold, could withhold. So we saw some other interesting things, too. So we went into St. Paul's Cathedral, which St. Paul's Cathedral is reputed to be on Lude Hill. And there is a, a road that comes right up there called Ludgate. Ludgate it runs right in front of St. Paul's. And it's not much of a hill, but you can tell there was a hill there at one point. And this was the rise in the swamp that was at one time London. This was the rise where Paul preached. Now, we have evidence that he preached in Acts chapter 29. And Acts chapter 29 is very disturbing for a lot of people. Some people said, oh, well, we're going to burn your book now because you printed Acts 29. In fact, one guy did, made a video of it and put the book in a, in a wood stove and burned it. And uh, which I wrote him back later. And I said, well, now that you regret what you did, you want to buy another copy. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, uh, but Acts 29, it talks about the, the journeys of Paul. And it talks about how Paul went... Uh, Paul left Rome. Now, this is anathema to the story you hear from the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church tells you, oh, no, Paul was, uh, was beheaded in Rome. Paul was beheaded by Nero. Well, I ran into, we went into some ancient bookstores uh, at the uh, leaving of uh, Malcolm, who was at the meeting in Ludworth. He said, you need to see these, you need to see these. And so we hit some ancient bookstores in uh, both in Beckles and in Norwich, uh, out on the eastern side of England and in York as well. But when we were going through the bookstores in Norwich, we, I found a two-volume set on the journeys of Paul that were from the mid-1800s. And in this set, these fellows had concluded, these were Cambridge scholars, these fellows had concluded that Paul was a won his court hearing in Rome in front of Nero. He won it. He won the case. And he, in fact, was exonerated and released, and he left Rome in 61 AD. Now, these are kind of important dates because, you know, when you're in the Christian world, you know, people guess at what, what time Paul did it. Well, we think Paul did it here and Paul did it here. Well, the Roman record's very, very clear. He was, he was exonerated in 61 AD, and he left for Spain, did, in fact, go to Spain and appoint bishops. Now, the story you don't hear about Paul is that Paul was a competing missionary particularly in Britain, he was a competing missionary because in Britain, there were already missionaries, i.e. Joseph of Arimathea and the 11 other people in the family that had come with him to Britain. And they were in a different section of Britain. They were down in, there was an area called Cornwall, which is where they mined tin. And there was a road that they crossed over that. And they crossed into waters that were called the Seven, the Sevens Estuary, which is a huge estuary, very important. They crossed that onto an island called Avalon and created uh, a new place. And this is where, uh, where the Blackfriar Abbey was built on Avalon. This is where Joseph of Arimathea is buried. The Bishop of Jerusalem is buried there. And they were, they were promoting the faith in 36 AD. Well, this is quite a few years, several decades before Paul is going to arrive. Paul doesn't arrive until about 63 AD. And he arrives at a different level. He comes in through Plymouth, and then he goes north up to Mount Lude. He doesn't come in through Exmouth or Falmouth or any of that area down south in Cornwall, but rather in the center, and he goes up to Mount Lude to preach. Very interesting the way Yah would orchestrate this kind of thing. But 
Nonetheless, Paul goes back through Switzerland and into Macedonia. Now, this is what Acts 29 says, and these scholars tended to agree. They said, well, look, we know he left in 61 AD, and we believe he died in Macedonia in 64 AD. So what did he do in those three years? Well, we think the three years are pretty clear what happened, that the record in Acts 29 tells us the rest of the story. Now, something else that happened, you recall Wycliffe was the initiator of translating scripture into English, but it was William Tyndale that undertook the New Testament. And William Tyndale undertook the New Testament with a guy named Miles Coverdale. Well, Tyndale, when he published his New Testament, we were in St. Paul's, and I'm looking at the record in St. Paul's, and the bishop in St. Paul's in 1539 burned Tyndale's book, burned it. In 1569, it all Religious services in Britain had to be done in English. So it took 30 years to go from burning of Tyndale's work to it becoming the dominant work and the dominant force throughout Britain. And in fact, Parliament passed a law in 1538 that uh, said there has to be a Bible in every church and the church has to be open and it has to be in English. And it was Coverdale's Bible, William Coverdale's Bible, Miles Coverdale's Bible called the Great Bible in 1539, which was the script, which was the dispositive text. And from my point of view, remains the dispositive text, at least in the formation of the English Bible, because the English Bible included at all times the Apocrypha. And the Coverdale work was the first one that had completed, not on the Old Testament, not on the Apocrypha, but the New Testament, and it was in a unified form of English, not in Tyndale's English, which was, you know, any spelling at any time, anywhere, right? So Coverdale's work became the Great Bible, very instrumental and very important text, much more important than the 1611 KJV, which did not sell very well, namely because it was a king's Bible. It was set out to be uh, you know, a masterful work that was going to be used in the high facility. So they didn't sell them any of them. They were huge, by the way, huge books. And so, and, and at any rate, the 1611 KJV was a downstream work to Coverdale's work. In other words, they didn't do the lion's share of the translating. They did a lot of borrowing of Coverdale's work. So Miles Coverdale to this day remains, uh, I think the most instrumental person in setting forth the scripture in the English language. Now he was born up in York. There's a big plaque on him at the York Minster Cathedral and ended up being the Bishop in Exeter for a while and then died in London. But he was not burned at the stake. He was not hanged. He was not killed. None of that. He just came forward with an English Bible that later became about 96% of it became the 1560 Geneva Bible of John Calvin. And about 92% of that became the 1611 KJV, you see. And of course, what they call the KJV authorized version now simply is not. Uh, it's a redacted form. It's an edited form. It's got paragraphs in it that didn't exist in the initial text. It's got changed up language that didn't exist. It's deleted the Apocrypha. And what we discovered about the deleting of the Apocrypha, now here's something else I've got to share with you guys. This really surprised me. 
So when we went up to uh, Glasgow, Scotland, when we got up in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, we found evidence of a couple of things. One thing is they were calling the churches Kirks. The old churches were called Kirks. Now, a Kirk, as many of you know, was named after the Greek goddess that we were always taught was pronounced Circe. Circe. And actually, not Circe, but actually Kirki. And Kirki would seduce sailors by using wine and telling them uh, telling them things and converting them into pigs, right? I don't know if you remember this, the sirens and all of this, converting them into pigs. And this is how she did it, right? Well, the circus comes from the name Circe, circus. But in Scotland, the name for the circus was the Kirk, the Kirk. And they would call their churches a circus, church, a Kirk. And so this is where this word comes from, Kirk. Well, here we are. We're going into one of the most important squares in downtown Glasgow. So, you know, a lot of the older cities, you know, they have the pedestrian. They've got the pedestrian square, you know. Well, only people can walk. You can't drive your car there anymore. So we went into this pedestrian square in downtown Glasgow, which is called St. Enoch's Square. St. Enoch's Square. Now, I found that interesting that Scotland would be talking about St. Enoch. Now, to get even more complex, when we got to Edinburgh, we're walking along the Royal Mile. We come to this historic church that's like 300 years old. And this church is called the Tron Kirk. Now, to name the church Tron tells me that the Scots were very well aware of first, second, and third Enoch. They were very well aware of it. So how is it that the Scots would come in and say, you know, we need to get rid of this Apocrypha? <clears throat> okay. So here's what I think what I think the situation was in deleting the Apocrypha. You had something very interesting that was taking place uh, throughout this tenure between Henry VIII and coming forward. And the, the interesting thing was, was a push and shove between Catholicism and not Catholicism. And so this push and shove went back and forth. And Henry VIII, who was a very brutal man, uh, wanted to divorce his wife, and he wanted to divorce himself from the Roman Church, which he which he did. Now, by the way, it was uh, it was the Archbishop there in York, Thomas Cromwell, who was the chief sponsor of Miles Coverdale. Remember that all of this stuff with Miles Coverdale taking place, Thomas Cromwell. This all happens during the time of Henry VIII, and Henry VIII would ultimately behead Thomas Cromwell. But Miles Coverdale escapes with an English Bible and in fact gets parliament to adopt it. So Henry pushes back and says, look, we've got to get away from the Catholic Church. So he breaks away. Now, this is just a few years after Martin Luther had you know, typed up his, written his objections to the Catholic Church and posted them on the door in Germany. Now, with Martin Luther posting these objections and saying, gee, I'm holier than now, or I've got concepts that are holier than now, and his objections are well taken even to this day, Nonetheless, Martin Luther was promoting a form of Christian lawlessness. Now, this you can't avoid. In his writings, 22 years of his writings, you have the promotion of Christian lawlessness. 
oh, we're not saved by faith through works. We're saved by grace and grace alone. And if you try to do anything in terms of works, you've fallen from grace. And if you've fallen from grace by trying to do works, you're anathema to the kingdom and grace and salvation are not available to you. I know you guys have heard this story in the Christian church. I know you've heard it. Well, this is not as accurate as it should be and represents a big problem because, first of all, when you talk about grace, grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the impetus of Yah to reach you with his love. That he calls out to you and says, I know your name. You are my child. That's his grace. That there is someone knocking at the door. That he demonstrates his love for us. That Mashiach died for us while we were yet still sinners. Okay? That epitomizes the graciousness and the grace of Yah. So that's grace, not a license to sin. And when you're talking about safe through faith, what is faith? Is faith merely belief? Or is faith acting in accord with your belief? If you're going to be faithful to your marriage, does that mean you believe in your marriage? No, your faith in your marriage means a lot more than just believing. Now, people say, well, I don't want to be, you know, caught up in works. But, you know, when you get into the rabbinical nuances, which we can do, well, then how do I get saved? Well, you have to confess with your mouth. Well, isn't that a work? Well, we draw the line, you know, after that. Any work after that is a work. But before that, that's not a work. Well, you know, at some level, right? Somebody's got an exception to the rule. But the truth is, what does James say? Faith without works is dead. In Revelation, it says three times, you will be judged by your works. Mashiach says, you will be judged by every word that comes out of your mouth. For by your words, you are justified. And by your words, you are condemned. So, I mean, you have these things that are presented to us over and over again. So the truth of the story is, is that we are called, we may be forgiven from the beginning of our life to the end of our life, but we are called to walk in accord with Yahusha and to walk in accord with the totality of the Torah. Not a portion of the Torah. Oh, I've isolated a particular scripture and I'm going to build a church on that one scripture. Well, that's a cult. If you're in a situation, if you're in a church or in a faith church, which has eliminated portions of the scripture, we don't read that book. We don't believe in uh, John 1. We don't think John 1 is accurate. We, we're certainly not reading the Apocrypha. We don't read the Old Testament. Stay away from Moshe's Torah. Don't read it. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't do the other thing. If you're in a church where they're just limiting your conversation to selected texts out of the, out of the manuscript, then guess what? You're in a cult. That's the truth of it. You should be able to open your eyes and open and read and your faith not diminish one iota. 
because the scripture does not diminish the faith. And so this is why when I see these kinds of things, so when we, when we see this talking about, well, when we get to Martin Luther, Martin Luther was, you know, in, in response to the question, should we sin that grace might abound, that Paul asks. Martin Luther's answer, yes, we should. I mean, literally, he said, yeah, it's okay to rape, it's okay to murder, you know, you do any of those crimes and all that'll happen is forgiveness will abound. You know, you can't be forgiven if you don't do things that are uh, deserving of forgiveness. You won't have the grace in your life unless you've committed these offenses. I mean, this was his teaching. So you have to keep this in mind that when we get to this revolution that takes place in 1689, you've got a push and shove going back and forth. You know, you had the Presbyterians come in. You had King James come in. He publishes a Protestant Anglican Bible. And as soon as he dies, his son Charles I is pushing the country back into Catholicism. As he pushes back into Catholicism, Oliver Cromwell rises up and said, no, you're not going to push this back into Catholicism. He forms an army, you know, pro-Democrat. He's going to empower the, the parliament to take over the country. And he does. And he imposes Protestantism on the entirety of the British Isles. Remember, he united everything. Ireland was completely captured under Cromwell. And so the United Kingdom was united as a Protestant enclave, a commonwealth. And after his death, here comes Charles II, and the push is back on to reinstate Catholicism. And with the death of Charles II, you get to James II, and he's intent on taking the country back into the Catholic Church. And when he did, revolution breaks out in Britain. And the revolution is won, believe it or not, in Ireland. It's won primarily at this place called Athlone, which is in the center of Ireland a big fortress castle, well-defended, so on and so forth. And the Irish were fighting, were fighting with French Catholics at Athlone. But it was these people from the Netherlands with their German generals, William and Mary of Orange, they came in with German generals, Netherlands troops, and they defeated the Catholics at the Battle of Athlone and later defeated James II at the Battle of the Boyne, again in Ireland. So what takes place is Germans now capture the throne of Britain. And these guys were not Anglican Protestants, but were rather Lutheran Protestants. And the Lutherans brought with them lawlessness. Now, this is extremely important to see this in terms of our understanding where we are now, because the Lutherans came in with lawlessness. The Presbyterians in Scotland were well read to the point that they, it was obvious they had read Enoch. They were well read in the Apocrypha. They were supporting the Apocrypha, etc. And now all of a sudden you have the Lutherans and they're going, hmm. We want to eliminate books because Martin Luther, not only did Martin Luther uh, you know, cast aside the Apocrypha, but he created a New Testament Apocrypha that included the book of Revelation, that included Jude, that included first uh, uh, James and second Peter. Four books he wanted to cast to the curb and call them Apocrypha. Why didn't he like those books? Because they insisted that you're going to be judged by your works. So he cast them aside. He didn't want them read. Now, in fairness to Martin Luther, he did repent from that. 
He did repent from that, but it took him a while. But here we see, this is what happened with the Westminster Confession. Now, I can tell you that the most damaging thing that's happened in the entire Protestant faith, in my opinion, was the Westminster Confession. This opened the door. First of all, it shut down the reading, right? Oh, you guys don't need to read the wisdom of Solomon. You know, I mean, now to give you an example, I'm going to give you proof that, in fact, the Apocrypha was well accepted and was well accepted by the royalty as late as King George IV. Because King George IV had in his collection, we saw it at uh, Holyrood in, uh, uh, in Edinburgh, at the Castle of Holyrood. We went into the collection, of the, the gallery of, uh, of um, Queen Victoria, I think it was. And then we go in there, and one of the paintings that George IV had was a painting of Judith beheading Holofernes. Now, what book is, of the Bible is that from? Judith beheading Holofernes. What book of the Bible is that from? Well, it's from the book of Judith. An apocryphal book. So George IV readily accepted the Apocrypha as scripture to the extent that he would put a celebrated painting very large oil painting of Judith with the head of Holofernes in her hand. Okay. Again, these are the kinds of things that you can see in the evidence, the evidence telling you what people believed, what, what the transactions actually were. And this, by the way, is post Westminster confession and the Westminster confession saying, Oh, you only need to read 66 books. The dummies only need to have 66 books. They don't need any more than that. They only need 66, and then you can kind of custom pick what you want to teach them. So this is what they did. Now, as soon as they opened the door with the Westminster Confession, well, not that soon, but a couple hundred years later, in walks through the door Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort were two Cambridge professors, neither of whom were believers in the faith. And they set out to create the true and oldest text known to man. They were, in other words, they were going to replace the Stephanus Textus Receptus that had been relied upon by Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, Calvin, and the King James interpreters. They're going to replace that with a more ancient text. What ancient text did they come forward with? The Codex Sinaiticus. Now, the Codex Sinaiticus was a forgery. It was forged by a guy named Constantine Simonides, who went to a seminary for a while, and he was writing out the New Testament for the Tsar in Russian. And he messed it up. And when he did, he threw it in the trash. Excuse me. He was writing it up for them in Greek. I'm sorry, not in Russian, in Greek. And he messed it up, and he threw it in the trash. The monks knew he'd messed it up. They were using pages from it to start fires. Well, a German who was not a professional archaeologist at all, but had a hobby of archaeology, went down there and found it and went, oh, look, I found the oldest text in the world. Were there two copies of it? No, there was one copy. So he was short the second witness. But he comes back claiming, I found the oldest text in the world, the Codex Sinaiticus. 
and he publishes it. And when he does, Constantine Simonides, who at that time was living in Manchester, publishes for three years in a row. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it. I did a bad job. I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it. That doesn't stop Westcott and Hort from proclaiming it to be the dispositive, authoritative New Testament that, by the way, has over 2,000 omissions from the Stephanus Textus Receptus. Then they went to the Codex Vaticanus, a notoriously Catholic corrupted version of the Old Testament, to create their Old Testament. So you have an Old Testament from the corrupted Codex Vaticanus and a New Testament from the forged Codex Sinaiticus. And they claimed this was the authoritative, authoritative received text. Now, this became your average American Bible. The NASB, the ASB, the NKJB. And then in the late 60s, a group decides, you know, those books are too complicated for people to read. We need to paraphrase it and make the, the verbiage much more friendly. So they did, and they paraphrased it and, be, and created the new international version, the NIB. And from that has come the ESV. But all of these versions are all dependent as their source text upon Westcott and Hort. Now, I want you to think about that a little bit, because all these people that want to kill me and they're burning the sepher and they're denouncing me and running up videos and calling me a blasphemer and everything else, do they say one word about the NIV? Do they say one word about the Codex Sinaiticus? Do they say one word about it? Not a thing. We don't, we don't hear a peep out of them when it comes to those texts. And so what you see from those omissions and that faulty text is we see all the seminaries and theological centers in the states teaching from that text, revering that text, showing their students to stand up in front of a congregation and say, this is the inerrant word of God, which they do. And you end up with what? 70 years of absolute lawlessness being taught from the pulpit in the American churches. So why isn't the American church the Church of Philadelphia? Let me get some opinions here. Of the seven churches in Revelation, which church do you think best describes the American church? generally speaking. Laodicea. Laodicea. Yeah, I agree with that, John. Yeah, lukewarm, right? Lukewarm and wealthy. Saying to themselves, we have everything we need. We will never need anything. Not recognizing that they are poor, naked, and hungry because they've never fed on the true word. They've been fed instead a prosperity gospel. They've been fed instead, you know, uh, a new age symbolism. They've been fed instead uh, the, um, the Catholic doctrine of indulgence. You know, pay for your sins and continue to sin, and we'll tell you it's okay. 
So when we look at all of that, what we see is, is that we see the fundamental truth, the underlying truth in all of scripture is that we are called into obedience to obey the word of Yah. That's what we're called into. We're called into obedience. Very important thing. We're not, what does Mashiach say? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Haven't you read? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But what else does he say? Go out and baptize them and teach them to obey all that I have commanded them. This, if you love me, obey my commands. Well, the command is love Yah with all your heart, mind, and soul. Very true. But what's the love of Yah? Well, 1 John 5 tells us this is the love of Yah. How do you love Yah? Obey his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous, they're not difficult. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And this is what we're called into. This is who we are called to. Now, when we see these three patterns, let's go back and look again at the Church of Philadelphia. What does he say? What's going to happen to the Church of Philadelphia when we get into these trying times that we're in right now? Let's see. Uh, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. For you have a little strength, you have guarded my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which they say they are Jews, Yahudim, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have guarded the word of my patience, I also will guard you from the hour of calamity, which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to that which you have, that no man can take your crown. I will guard you from the hour of calamity. And how does we know who you are? You are those who have not denied his name. Now let's go to, if we can, Jeremiah 33. Yah was showing me this, you know, the day I left, which was yesterday. <laughs> Seems like a long time ago. Okay. Now, here we are, Jeremiah 33. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto El Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, the second time, while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the maker thereof, Yahweh that formed it to establish it, Yahweh is his name. That's three times we see Yahweh in one verse. Three times in one verse. 
And he says, I am the maker. I am the one who established it. And Yahweh is my name. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. For thus says Yahweh, the Elochai of Yasharel, concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Yehudah, which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword. They come to fight with the casting, but I'm gonna, I will go on with this. But this prophecy in Jeremiah 33 is a huge prophecy, and it's an extremely important prophecy because it is telling us a couple of things. One is desolation is coming. But although desolation is coming, Oh, I will, I will read it. They come to fight with the Castine, but it is to fill them with dead bodies of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my fury, and for all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them, and I will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. Now, you know, when we're talking about this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us here now. We're talking about this. I was thinking about a phrase that I remember, but let's pray first, and then we'll get into this. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for you to you today, Father. Thank you for blessing us with the Shabbat. Thank you for your presence being among us. Thank you for gathering us together as a family before you. May your name be glorified in what we do here today. May your name be lifted up. May your word be that which we study. And opinions go to the side, but your word become front and center. May your truth become evident to us. May your spirit be upon us in all things. Your ruach be within us and dwell within us and over us and bless us in kind, yeah, as you lead us through today in the Shabbat, that time of rest, when we might say to you, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for giving us this day. Thank you for being a blessing to us. Thank you for your Shabbat that you have gifted us with this. Thank you, Father. Amen and hallelujah, hallelujah. So there is a passage, I believe it's in Second uh, uh, Peter, where Peter greets the brethren and the, and the sisters. And I initially learned this in Russian, actually. It was a blessing to the Russians. Which is essentially in Hebrew this. Baruch atach v'shalom v'yada yawa sevaot v'yashach hamashiach Adonai nu. Blessings to you and peace. Shalom. Baruch atach v'shalom v'yada yawa sevaot in the knowledge of yawa. And the Messiah, Adonai Nu, our Adonai. It's a, it's a very good greeting in Hebrew, and a very good greeting that you can bring to people. Blessings to you in peace. Blessings to you in peace. And here it is, right? And he says here, Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them and reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. 
Shalom Emet. Peace and truth. Shalom Emet. And I will cause the captivity of Yehuda and the captivity of Yasharel to return and will build them as at the first. Now, this is good. This is an extremely important uh, teaching. I will cleanse from them all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. And they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and the prosperity that I procure unto it. Thus says Yahweh, again, there shall be heard in this place, which ye say shall be desolate without man and without beast, even in the cities of Yehuda and in the streets of Jerusalem, that are desolate and without man and without inhabitant and without beast. And believe me, this is coming. This desolation is coming. But the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise Yahweh, right? Hallelujah, for Yahweh is good and his mercy endures forever. Yada Yahweh, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, Sebaod. Yada Yahweh, Sebaod. Kitov, Ki Laolam Chastu. Or in this case, you have Yahweh in there twice. So, yada yawa sebaot ki yawa tov ki laolam chastu, for his mercy endures forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise unto the house of Yahwa, the sacrifice of praise. So, what kind of sacrifice are we called to? Right? Let's stop right here for a second. And I'm a little, since we're asking the question, let's ask the question. Let's ask the question that was asked by one of the prophets. Wherewith shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before the Most High Elohim? Shall I come before him with ascending smoke offering, offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what Yahweh requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your Elohim. He has shown you, and it is not animal sacrifice. No, it is the sacrifice of praise. Pretty big sacrifice. Yah's loading us up with the heavy burden again. He's loading us up with the heavy burden, the heavy yoke. We have to sacrifice praise, right? Let us hear it. Let us just say it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, with the sacrifice of praise into the house of Yahweh. Hallelujah. 
you know, even when we were walking through St. Paul's, right? You've got more Christian trappings than you could possibly imagine. Imagine, you know, load up the eight-sided cross, put up this, the chalice, let's put some new candelabras up here and some paintings, some icons, some murals. What surprised me in the chief church in Britain, St. Paul's, downtown London. In fact, it's in the city of London, right? Chief church in London. You walk in the front door and there's icons right there. You know, Madonna and child on the left with halos, Mashiach on the right with halo. I mean, Byzantine icons right in the front door. Byzantine icons later on in the building. I mean, I was really shocked to see the Byzantine icons in this church. Anyway, there they were, right? And thus says Yahweh, again, in this place, which is desolate, you see, in the place that is now desolate, without man and without beast, and in all the cities thereof, in that place, there shall be a habitation of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. Now, the habitation of shepherds, does this mean somebody who's got a bunch of sheep? No, this means the pastors and the flocks, the pastors in the, in the assemblies. That's what he's talking about here. Shall be a habitation of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the Negev, and in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Yerushalayim, and in the cities of Yahudah, shall the flocks pass again under the hands of him that tells them, says Yahweh. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Yasharel and unto the house of Yehudah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up in David. Now, this is an interesting prophecy, and I'm just going to kind of get your, your guys' take on it, if possible. In that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up in David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Now, we know that Mashiach is the branch of righteousness that sprung from the tribe of Jesse, right, from the root of Jesse. But listen to the end of this, and, and let's get some feedback from you. In those days shall Yehudah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, Yahuwah Sidhinu, Yahuwah, our righteousness. For thus says Yahuwah, here we go, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Yasharah. Neither shall the priests the Leviim want a man before me to offer ascending smoke offerings and kindle oblations and to do sacrifice continually. And the word of Yahweh came unto El Yahu, saying, Thus says Yahweh, if you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should not be day and night in their season. Then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. And with the Leviim, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured. So will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Leviim that minister unto me. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto El Yirmiyahu, saying, Consider you not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which Yahweh has chosen, 
he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people that they should no more be a nation before them. Thus says Yahweh, if my covenant be not with day and night, if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Yaakov and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. Okay, so let's get some opinions. What do you think? Is the Levite priesthood ordained into eternity? Lori says no. I would say the. What's that, Rob? I, my opinion is the Malachitzedek priesthood supersedes all and, and absorbs the, the, the priesthood of the Levitical line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Malachite Malachit Siddiq priesthood is a priesthood of what? Oath. And not a priesthood of bloodline. When we talk about the priests and the and the ministers, and again, you know, when I read this passage here, you can see when it says that uh, that the Levim will uh, that the Levim will um, uh, where come on here, this man. yeah, in eighteen thirty three eighteen, neither shall the priests, the Levim want a man before me to offer ascending smoke offerings and to kindle oblations and to do sacrifice continually. All right, now there's a couple of things there. First of all, the ascending smoke offering, the word there that you find there is ola, right? And its root is Allah. Yep. Ola and Allah. Now this is where we get the term aliyah, aliyah. And Aliyah is what they talk about when you're going to go to Israel. You know, you're going to make Aliyah to Israel. You're going to ascend up to Israel. But when I look at Ola, the first time you see Ola, this is Yaakov practicing this. And he says he does this ascending smoke offering. And he and his friends ate the bread thereof. Now, it's very interesting because in the Old Testament, they're very generous about using the word meat. And quite often they use the word meat to describe just food. They sat down to dinner. Oh, no, they sat down to meat, right? That's how it's put quite often in English text. But for them to specify, they ate the bread, and the word there is bread that appears in that passage. They ate the bread thereof. And what does that tell you the offering, the initial offering was? the initial Ola, the initial ascending smoke offering. Unleavened bread. Yeah, it was a grain offering. It was a grain, it was a, it was a bread offering. It was, uh, it was a grain offering. There was no animal that was slaughtered in that offering. Now, you get a similar situation with some of the other offerings as well. The Zabak and the Ola and all of these things, these are, uh, they're offerings that were not necessarily done with animals. Now, Moshe gets in there and it's like, kill the animals, you know. Kill a lamb and, and burn it. And have a lamb on the fire morning, noon, and night. I mean, that's what the Torah command says. Have a lamb on the fire morning, noon, and night. The daily oblation. 
But I don't believe that that is the case. In fact, Jeremiah here in 721, right? This very same prophet in 721, what does he say? He says, therefore, thus says Adonai, this is Jeremiah 720. Therefore, thus says Adonai Yahweh, behold, my anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast and upon the trees of the field and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and not be quenched. Thus says Yahuwah Sebaot, the Elohai of Yasharel, put your ascending smoke offerings unto your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim concerning ascending smoke offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your Elohim, and you shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. Right? So you have Jeremiah telling you point blank that Yah never ordered the ascending smoke offerings. And yet the, the, the Levian priesthood is assured in this passage, as is someone on the throne of David over the house of Yasharel. Well, we know there's a couple of things here. Number one, when you talk about all of Yasharel, who is Yasharel? All 12 tribes. Yeah, all 12 tribes. Has Yasharel ever been uh, recreated in a physical single geographic kingdom since its dispersion? No. No. And the nation of Israel is not Yasharel. I mean, it just isn't. The nation of Israel, when they proclaim it to be for Jews only, they have excluded 11 other tribes. So it's and so and they tell you all oh, the other ten tribes are completely lost and unfindable. So who is Israel? Who's Yasharel? Right? Yasharel, who's a Yashareli indeed? Those who have a confession of faith in the Father and the Son. In the Father and the Son. And this, these are Yashareli, and it has nothing to do with your race, and it has nothing to do with where you are, and it has nothing to do with your lineage. It has to do with who you are spiritually, who you are spiritually. And who is the king over Yasharel? Well, Yasharel now is then worldwide. There's Yasharelim in every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And there's one king in the line of David. In some texts, he's in the line of David, but very few. In most English texts, Mashiach is not in the line of David. He's excluded from the line of David. But that's another story. But at any rate, we see that Mashiach, assuming that he is in the line of David, satisfies that need. But now what about the levying priesthood? What about the levying priesthood? Well, now this is a big question because I can tell you that there are a huge contingency of Jews who say, I'm Jewish, and then they point their lineage back to Aaron. Uh, from my point of view, then you're Levi'im, you're not Jewish, you know, you're not Yahudim, you're Levi'im, you're not Yahudim. But whatever. But the thing is, when you're talking about the Levite priesthood, you know, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about this sacrifice of praise, right? Sacrifice of praise. 
So what I think what Yah is saying here, again, I, you know, I'm just kind of thinking from the hip here, but what I think Yah is saying here is that there will never be a time when there isn't someone to lead others to the ministry of prayer and the ministry of praise and the ministry of the Torah and the ministry of the Torah. There will always be a teacher in the Torah. There will always be a minister of praise. There will always be a minister of prayer. And in fact, when you, you know, one of the things we discovered kind of the hard way, but if you want to talk to the Christian churches and you want to get something done, you never talk to the pastor. It's a waste of time. If you want to talk to the people that make a difference in a church, you talk to those who tell you, I am a prayer intercessor for this church. Those are the people you talk to. Because those are the people that make everything in that, in that facility happen. It's the prayer intercessors. And these, I think, are the true priesthood. I mean, I think this is when, when we're talking about when he talks about the Levium. So we, we've got this construct in our mind. But the Levium were given, I think, and again, I'm going to say something radical here. But I think the Levine, when they were given the animal sacrifices, were given bad law. And they weren't given bad law because Yah's instruction was horrible. But they were given the law of sacrifice because they were horrible. Because they had stiff necks and would not come out of Egypt. And because they would not stop worshiping animals and worshiping half man, half animals. And as a result, Yah said, well, if you guys are going to worship the bull, then I'm going to have you sacrifice the bull. If you're going to worship a goat, I'm going to have you sacrifice the goat. And that was a part of it. But the goat and the bull and the, the lamb and everything else, they had no capability of atoning for your sins. They kept you in the camp, kept you from being stoned, but they couldn't atone for your sins. There was only one blood that could atone for the sins. So this is why I do think that I don't think that this passage is inaccurate. Now, what about the business of someone being on the throne of David over the house of Yashrael? Is there a physical component to that? Is there a physical person? Now, you had all of these lines of David that were the kings. You know, you go into Matthew 1 and you have 14 generations of kings from David that were that sat on the throne for 14 generations. And thereafter, there's another roster of 14 who were kings, but who could not sit on the throne because of the curse that came on Yekonyahu. Were there kings on the throne of David thereafter? Now, this is a question that has to be answered, because you have to remember that when you're in a province like Britain, where they have a king now, is he on a throne that belongs to David? Or is it a usurpation of power? I mean, this is a question. I mean, when you talk, I think when you talk about rightful government, you talk about this passage out of Isaiah that says, Yahweh is your king, Yahweh is your judge, Yahweh is your lawgiver. And it seems to me that a righteous society, anyone who is executing the office of the king, should be in open and notorious subservience to Yah. Anyone who is sitting on the bench as a judge should be in open and notorious subservience to Yah. And anyone who is engaged in quote-unquote lawmaking needs to be open and subservient to Yah. 
Because when you're not, then you create any harebrained law you want to create. Oh, I think we should pass this and make this a law. Amen. What's the foundation for that? Uh, oh, I've got my reasoning. The, the people in the local newspaper are screaming louder than everybody else. That's why we want to make it happen. Well, sorry, squeaky wheel does not equate with logic, rationale, and it certainly doesn't rise to righteousness. So for righteousness to exist, lawmakers must comport with Scripture. There should be no law that contradicts Scripture that should be made by anyone. A law that contradicts Scripture is anathema and should not even be construed as a genuine mitzvot of any binding authority whatsoever. This should be the common law premise. So this is why I'm saying that when we talk about this, when we talk about you know, I mean, so like, you know, Charles III, right? I feel sorry for Charles, taking on Charles III. I mean, Charles I, Charles II did not have good reputations. Charles I was beheaded for treason. I mean, there were just a lot of problems with the name. Charles III is not a promoter of the faith. Uh, instead, you know, we were talking about this. We had some good, very good uh, candid conversations. You know, he's a sycophant of the World Economic Forum. He's a WEF guy. He's signed on to Global Agenda 2030. You know, and so this does not spell well for Charles III. And uh, and then the question is, let's assume that there is a line of kings that that take place from Brand the Blessed forward, and that that they do in fact have the bloodline of Joseph of Arimathea, who was in fact one of the inherited kings from David. Do they have a right to a throne? I mean, these, these are the questions I'm asking you guys. Do they have a right to an earthly throne? Or is the divine right of kings something that was terminated at the time of Yahu, Jeconiah? I mean, look, this is not, this is not a, an easy debate here, what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that has been debated now for 2,000 years. And some of the, the best academicians in the world have entered into this fray to say, well, meh, divine right of kings? Believe me, this was extolled in France, Germany, in the Netherlands, in Sweden, and in Britain for a, over a thousand years, the divine right of kings to rule. And in the kings, they make it a very strong point to point to their genealogy to say, I can trace my blood back to Mary Magdalene and Jesus, which the French kings claimed. I can trace my blood back to Bran the Blessed and his wife, the sister of Mary, the mother of Yahusha. Therefore, I have a divine right to rule. Assuming that that was true, that they could actually do that, do they have a divine right to rule, given what we just read in Jeremiah? No. Okay, thank you, Catherine. Now, why do you think that? Stephen, uh, you have blown my mind. What you've been speaking to tonight, I ministered to the group that we know about, what well, you know about, about the lines of David and the usurper kings all around Europe and Britain. We are finding more and more evidence 
that the real children, firstborn, were adopted out, hidden. But Yah is raising up these people. And I was speaking about that you have no divine right unless you love Yahuwah, Yahweh, with all your heart and soul. Yah will only give the divine right even to a commoner if he loves Yah with all his heart and soul. He will give the leadership. He will give the leadership. Yes. To, to, yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, in um, fact, he lifts up people from all walks of life to do the work of the kingdom. Exactly. And the people that love, blood doesn't matter anymore. The people who love Yahuwah with every fiber of their being will be kings and priests. We will wear our crowns for Yah. Okay, and let me now you said something right here, Catherine. It's very, very good. Because if you recall... Uh, it's Peter Kepa who says, we are kings and priests, right? We are kings and priests. And this, uh, yeah, this is, a, I think, a very, very key, uh, key to everything that's being said here. Who are the kings in the line of David, right? But the true Yashareli. The true Yashareli exactly. is that someone is who crazy. loves you with all the heart, mind, and soul, right? That's exactly what I was ministering about. It was, I've never ministered in my life before. It was the first time the rook took over my mouth because I know it wasn't me speaking. Um, we, we can't go into detail who I was speaking to. You obviously know. But um, these individuals have all suddenly, and I think Yara is doing a movement that would shock the Torah community, but I, I cannot go into detail. But Yah is raising up men and women who have been rejected because of their bloodlines to David. They have been rejected by these so-called usurper kings. We have now getting more and more evidence that they are usurpers, but it, it cannot go public. Yeah. Well, I'll a tell lot you, of us yeah. wouldn't be alive. But well, you know, basically, the thing is, publicly, public or not, Catherine, Yah's hand is moving right now in huge, huge ways. Huge ways. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, was, I was contacted earlier today uh, about... Uh, talking about what's happening with the ultimate course for the Vatican and the persecution that quote unquote is coming towards Christians. Well, you know, again, this persecution is coming and the persecution is very clear in the six, seven letters there in revelation uh, two and three, those seven letters are very clear what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it would help those people if they had any idea, if they knew what was going on, but you know, Again, I mean, I'll come back to it. I think that you're going to see the Eastern Orthodox Church is going to inflict massive injury on Western Rome. 
And it's going to, and it's not only going to be on Western Rome, but it's going to be on Western Rome and all of her children, right? It's going to be on the mother of harlots and all her harlot churches. That is exactly what I was saying in the our ministry. I just, I just, you are taking the words. This is so Ruach Hakadesh inspired. What you have spoken tonight, it is unbelievable because. It's also confirmation to me. I was just saying in that meeting, how, I, I hope you don't mind, but I would like, like a copy of your ministry on the Shabbat, because I think it will do this group. Well, uh, Catherine, I it, have a it ton of stuff be... up in the blog space. Just go to the blogs. There's a bunch of stuff up. Anything you want, just let me know. I'll send you, I'll send you links. Okay. Yes. And sorry, while I'm on here, I've got my hand up. I was wondering if you wanted me to, I know you read the letter, Queen Elizabeth I. Would you like me to read it to this group just to refresh people's memories? Yes, but before you do, let me go to some of the other people that had their hand up first, okay? That's okay. okay. But thank you, brother. I, I'm just blown away by what, what you've spoken to tonight. I. I'm <laughs> well, you know, I, mean, I know it's something that we're trying to get, get, get a handle on Catherine, because I'll tell you, when I read this passage in Jeremiah 33, there's a desolation that comes first. And, you know, you know, what, 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 you know, what, what we were talking about last Thursday, what we've been talking about, what, what Jesse and I talked about last Friday, not last Friday, but uh, last Tuesday, you know, we talked about what's coming on the earth. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, Joe Biden comes out and goes, oh, we're facing nuclear Armageddon. Uh, hello. <laughs> Who started it? <laughs> would, you, would you like me to send you over a pot of coffee here, Joe, that you can drink some here for a minute? Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. he started and, and he's, yeah, he's got no idea that it's come to this point. It's like, how well, how'd we get here? Well, you know, mm -hmm. you, went, you went into the, you went into his, the bear and pen his, and, and started working and over the bear with a stick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, and so you know, so this is going to come, and it's going to come, it's going to come all over Europe, and it's going to, and it's going to come to the United States, and and it's going to come from two quarters of the United States. It's going to come, well, three, to count China and North Korea, North Korea, China, and you know, North Korea is like, can we reach Hawaii yet? And you know, I mean, it's like, you know, when you see North Korea doing this, like, okay, send a missile out, okay, bloop, oh well, that's not long enough. Put some more fuel in it. Okay. That's a little closer. That's not far enough. Boop. Okay. 4,500 miles. I mean, they're almost all the way to Hawaii. It's not what I would call, you know, sophisticated targeting. But Kim Jong-un doesn't care. It's like, keep loading it until you hit it. And do the people in Hawaii know that that, that, that last one came that close to Hawaii? They've got no idea. I mean, you can rest assured Christopher Green doesn't have any idea that North Korea is mm. dropping nukes in his backyard, you know, mm. but, mm. but these guys are crazy. And, you know, so I think it is coming. And I think, I, I, I think it's as many of the commentators have saying now, many of them, it's irreversible. It's, it can't be turned around now. Mm. And today I learned, you know, there was a, there was a time I was doing consulting for the nation of Georgia. Mm. And I got a, 
somebody wrote me a bid proposal and they said, would you give us a bid for consulting that you can do for Crimea? And I said, yeah, I can give you a bid. And, you know, they will, well, you know, tell us what your, you know, what your ideas would be. And then we'll see if we can, you know, put together some kind of a package. So I laid it out for them. And one of the, one of the things I laid out to them was besides paving some airports and restructuring some towns was I suggested to them a massive bridge to be built uh, there uh, at the Azov uh, crossing that would be uh, a comprehensive bridge. We, we've, we've done this up in Alaska where we built roads up in Barrow where they, they took a road and they built a comprehensive package, everything contained in the one road, I mean, all the fiber optic, sewer, water, everything. And so I suggested to them, you need to build a model bridge that contains railroad tracks, that contains auto traffic and heavy traffic, also contains fiber optics, everything that you need to make this thing a you know, complete package. Well, guess what? They didn't pay me a dime, but they built the bridge. <laughs> and they built this spectacular bridge that connects Russia to Crimea over this huge, elaborate bridge. Well, last night, somebody blew a truck up on the bridge and damaged that bridge. Oh, and, no. And I can tell you that that is, you know, like blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline wasn't an act of war enough. This is another major act of war against major Russian infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, how, and how long the Russians are going to hold their breath is the answer is mm-hmm. not much longer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, let's go to David here. <laughs> and let's get somebody to talk besides me and you, Catherine. You, because let's let's okay. face it, we could go on for forever, ever. <laughs> okay. hey, David, David, how are you, brother? Shabbat shalom. Glad to see you back back in town there. Shabbat shalom, Dave. I uh, have quite a bit on what I was going to say. The Midbar 31, verse 4 and 49 is, yeah, uh, okay. is one of the concentrations that point to the remnant. And the remnant that of the seed of the woman that have the testimony of Yahushua HaMashiach, the spirit of prophecy. Well, who's that? Is that all of them? No, it's not all of them. It's just the remnant. The first fruits of the resurrection. And the first fruits of the resurrection have uh, quite a job. To them, to the, to, to the chosen, 12 are given the authority over the door. Why? Because it's no longer them that lives, but Messiah that lives in, in, in the 144,000. That's just a remnant. And they are the ones that bring the great crowd to the bond of the covenant in the wilderness of the people with wrath poured out. Who are they? They're the the ones that flee to the camps in all the earth where the cloud by day and the pillar of fire is in multitude of places spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 35. Now, when we talk about that, that remnant that is given the, the door, it has to be, it has to, it can only be in the seventh millennium. And it's really at a particular time in the seventh millennium. It has to be at the time where they rise, where the where where those in the remnant rise to that authority. The sealed and sent. How many of them are, uh, are destroyed? None of them. It talks about that in Bamidbar. It's an example. 
that I just uh, of those two scriptures. Not one was lost. Why? Because yeah, no, David, where they are, the where that remnant is, where that remnant is, there is the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night in the yeah, camp. Amen. Yeah, and, that, and, yeah. and and that hundred that great crowd that comes to the bond of the covenant with wrath poured out. That's not the same covenant. It's it's more like Mount Sinai in Arabia, where this mountain was burning with fire. It was with wrath poured out. This covenant that we're in is shalom, the covenant of shalom, wholeness, peace. It has to do it has to do with fullness. Now on Yom Kippur, it's all it's I've known for years that Yom Kippur was the last trump. That the last trump, the dead and Messiah rise first. Well, then the destroyers are released. Released. Well, what happens then? Well, there's some protection in the earth. There's a remnant of the seed that come to manifestation after the after the woman flees to the wilderness, and the earth swallows up the flood. When is that? Well, it's coming soon because they, there's got to be a time of protection for the the great crowd in Revelation chapter. Yeah, right. Come to the bond of the covenant. Right, the yeah. bond of the covenant has to happen in that great distress. It cannot happen in the first six days because the, the body of the first Adam has dominion in the earth, according to the Tehillim 115. He said, the Shamayim belongs to Yahuwah, but he gave a rest to the, to the children of men, to the children of Adam, the first Adam, the first Adam who has dominion of the earth for amount of time. All in the first Adam die. All of them, everybody in the first Adam die. Why? Because it's it, it's appointed to that uh, 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 judgment. But to come out of the first Adam into the last Adam, into the bond of the covenant with wrath poured out, we see a great crowd that does that. But it's not completed. Not like the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits of the resurrection never marry or are given in marriage. The rest of the nation, the great, the great crowd, they marry, given in marriage. Some fall short of the thousand-year life. There's all kinds of uh, testimony that they haven't been completed. But when they cross over after the test, after the devil is loosed, for, uh, because it's his right to be loosed. Why? Because he has a, a dominion. He has, he has a, a covenant for the age of man, which is 7,000 years. And seven, the seventh day, though, it's overruled. And we're in the overruling right now. The overruling, and if you would, read Bamidbar 31, verse 4, and I think 49. Yeah, now that's why I wanted to ask you about those two verses, actually. Uh, because, you know, I had a very interesting discussion with this exact same passage with uh, Paul when the day we were leaving. And so I'm going to get your opinion on this, David. See what you think. So 31.4, of every tribe a thousand throughout all the tribes of Yasharal shall you send to the war. Now, let's say, and you said 39, did you say? So, well, it was 20, uh, 31, uh, 49, I believe it is. 31.49, okay. And, and so here it is. And they said unto El Moshe, your servants have taken, this is Numbers 31, verse 49. And they said unto El Moshe, your servants have taken the sum of the men of war which are under our charge, and there lacks not one man of us. And so here, this is the question I have for you. 
And this is the question that I was raising to Paul, or that Paul raised to me, rather, better said, is that in this passage in 31, Yah tells them, he says, you know, you go out there and, you know, uh, like here it is, okay? Let's see. Uh, I think maybe I was in a different passage. No, I was in a different passage. I'm sorry, it wasn't in 31. Because he was talking about war, right? The men of war. And so the question I have for you is, are we called to become ruthless warriors for Yah at this time? The last thing I would want is an opinion. I, I just resist an opinion like a, a, a like a carnal mind. Uh, the only thing that uh, of value to me is a revelation from Yahuwah because everything else is just it's just a deferral, a deferral. Yeah, I mean, so, I'm just so asking. Let me point, let me point at this. I do have an answer for you though. That the hunt, the the ones that were uh, up in that 49th verse. In, uh, in another version, the ISR scriptures, it talks about not one of them was missing. In other words, there wasn't one of those hundred, those twelve thousand killed. It's it, it's a, and it was the last battle before they crossed into the promised land. That was the very last battle, and that was uh, that's really interesting because the last battle before the day spring from on high, that hundred forty four thousand is the remnant of the seed that the devil turns to make war on. Why? Because they have the power to get him, and they have the power to the 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 power to proclaim the dominion in all the earth. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring this good this told news, and this also is the present. He bring the present of the great crowd to Yahuwah in the bond of the covenant, fulfilling what's written in Ezekiel chapter twenty, verse thirty-five. Now, uh, how much I don't, I, I could get real excited and talk fast. And uh, I don't want to do that. I want to make an emphasis on that the destroyers are held back. And I believe that includes the bear and includes everything else that's, that's uh, pending until the remnant of the seed of the woman is sealed. Boom. Now. now that, okay, now hold it. Stop right there for a second, David. Hold, stop right there for just a second. Let's let that gel for just a minute, what you just okay. said. Cool. Right. Uh, because, and maybe we can explore that a little bit, the remnant being sealed, right? And I think we are seeing that. Now, I mean, a couple of things on that, right? So we have, what is the seal that seals the remnant? Ezekiel 2020, right? Ezekiel 2020. Which is what? Let, let me go there real quick. Let's talk about that seal. Because when you're talking about the sealing, uh, the sealing, a, a very, just a very important statement you've made here. Yes, it is. That the damage is being held back. So in Ezekiel 2020, we have the passage says, And hollow my Shabbat, and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am Yahweh. Well, that's a sign, not a seal, right? Now, there's another passage in Ezekiel 9 that talks about, uh, he says, this is, you know, he's got, um, he has the angel with the inkhorn, right? And he says, 
he tells me to the angel with the inkhorn. And Yahweh said unto him, go through the midst of the city, throughout the midst of Jerusalem, and set a tab upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others who said in my hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite, and let your eyes spare, and neither have ye, let not your eyes spare, and neither have ye any pity. Slay utterly old, young women, children, and, and maids, but do not come near any man upon whom is the tab, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began with the ancient men, which were before the house. So again, we see now, is that the seal? Is this Tav, the striking twice of the doorpost, is that the seal of Yah? What is the seal of Yah? What is the seal that seals the believers? I believe it's a, a, a stained body like until Yahushua was a stained body. And that remnant is caught up to that position. And, and, and cannot be taken by a physical death, just like the 12,000 that crossed uh, that were in the last battle before they crossed into the land. Now, what we're talking about is coming up to a time where the push comes to uh, the life for a thousand years. Uh, things change. Now, the, uh, the lamb lays, lays down with the lion and uh, all these kind of things. Wait, 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 David. The wolf lies down with the lamb. Okay, the wolf. Okay, that sounds good. I love that part too. The wolf lays down with the with the lamb. And, uh, with the lion. The wolf lies down with the lion. Okay. Well, that sounds good, but it, uh, where's the lamb in it? They're not going to eat it. <laughs> the, lamb, the lamb's not in that passage, so I'll tell you. Well, uh, it's uh, whatever. There's uh, the predator is bound and and moved into not being a predator anymore. Let's put it okay. that way. Okay, that's, all right. That's, Fair a, cool, that's okay. a cool thing. That's a real cool thing. And uh, to get into the semantics about it, I just know that that's what that means. And so there's a lot of things that have changed because the devil goes to the the pit and the false prophet go to the lake of fire before the day spring from on high, and and then. When he comes from the east to the west, now that has to be in Passover. That has to be in Abib uh, with, with all of his taught ones. He collects his taught ones from the four corners of the earth. What are they doing the four corners of the earth? All over, scattered all over where they're guarding a great crowd. They're the, they're the young lions in the midst of the great crowd that they say that there's no defense. There, there's no deliverance from them if they turn on them. If, they, if, the, if the young lions have to have to come to govern the, the great crowd in the in the wilderness of the people there ain't no deliverance for them from that 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 why because it's your now the issue is is that arise shine comes in the great darkness and the and the goyim the uh, the fullness of the fullness of israel come to the brightness of the rising why because it's so dark in the world that they can't survive without coming to the uh, the brightness of the rising of the of the remnant that have that testimony of y'all. Yeah, right. And, and this is something that I think we're going to see here too. I mean, when you're talking about this, I mean, you know, I mean, the seal, the testimony of Yahusha. I mean, you know, when we're talking about sealing the remnant, I do think that there is a Torah observant component to that. Sure. It's not. I mean, like when you talk about who does Satan come to make war with? comes to make war with those who are guarding the commandments and have the testimony of Mashiach. 
Now that's said twice in, in Revelation, said twice that that's what the situation is. Those who guard the commandments and who have the testimony of Mashiach. So I think this is the ceiling. So I think, and, and also I think it's, pardon me, I keep disappearing here in, into the darkness. <laughs> it's part of, it's a trick that I do. If you want another truth every day, I, I use a, a video filter here that allows me to disappear. You know? But anyway, the, uh, the point I'm making is that when you look at what seals Yah's people, right? Part of that is what we've been talking about here with Philadelphia, that Yah sets his name upon his children. What's it say in the great prayer, right? right? And at the end of that, right? He says, and I will place my name upon them and their children. I will place my name upon them and their children. So I think when we get down to the bottom line here, what we're talking about, what seals the people, what's the sealing of the covenant, the sealing of those people is the name. I think it's the name. I think Yah puts his name on and within his children. I think that's what it comes down to. And when he does, when he does that, we're sealed in him. Now, how many people are going to have are going to be sealed under that name before we get to these this turmoil, this these series of events? I don't know. There's just a remnant, and there's just a remnant have the knowledge of the uh, of the renewed covenant that this is the covenant that I make with them after those days, saith you, that I'm going to cause this to happen. He puts it. I'm going to cause it to happen. It's not right. going to them. It's not them going. Uh, it's not them doing anything. It's not their works that goes about to establish their own righteousness by their works. That's the works of the Torah that doesn't perfect. That's the first covenant. The last covenant is that you become dead to self. You die to self. You no longer you that lives, but the Messiah that lives in you. And you're not double-minded. If you resist double-minded with the word of your testimony and the blood of the lamb, praise you, or he'll cause it to happen. Hallelujah. All right. Well, I think I'm going to leave you right there with a hallelujah with the praise. Hallelujah. I got criticized for saying that, but I'm going to leave you with that word on your lips anyway. Whether it's I, a I, I am sealed. I have a testimony about that. Um, I oh, was let's, hear, let's hear it, Ariel. Let's hear it. Okay. So many years ago, I was involved with a sort of a, I guess there would be like an occult group. I had gone into New Age and I met with this group in Toronto and they would channel demons now i didn't know that at the time but i was going and they would say the lord's prayer or sing amazing grace to come out of that thing and um and so i was really seeking the lord in a way i was seeking the truth even though i was involved in these things and one day um i picked up a bible the only one i had was was a paraphrased Bible that was very popular when I was a teenager. And I started reading it. And of course, I opened it to Paul and didn't like what he had to say about women. Um, but, you know, I didn't understand it at the time. But I was still seeking. And down the hallway and into the kitchen where I was sitting, a bowl of white light came and went into my forehead and was crackling like electricity in my forehead for over 45 minutes and that group and everyone involved in that group was destroyed except me 
And there was judge, there was a judge in that group, there was lawyers, there was a bank manager, very high level people in this group. And every one of them, their careers were destroyed. Things were exposed, what they had been doing. I was the only one that came through that without suffering any damage. But I had given my heart to the Lord as a teenager. So that's my testimony about being sealed by the Lord. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, that's it. So how would you describe the seal then? Well, I, you know, years later, a woman spoke exactly Ezekiel 9 to me and said, you're one of the people that sigh over the injustice and the evil in this land, which is true, which is true. I'm an intercessor and I often cry over these things. And so to me, the seal was exactly, it was an angel sent of the Lord to put that seal in my forehead to protect me from the damage that was coming to all of that group. And the other interesting thing is the room where that took place was over some businesses on the Danforth in Toronto. And so there was apartments in that building. There was businesses on the main level and that room burned. Wow. And nobody in any of the rest of the building was harmed. Not the apartments, not the businesses, only that room burned. May I say something? Sure. Ariel. Yes. What Stephen just said was the oil that's spoken of in the Song of Songs, that that's why the maidens love him, his name. Did you know that Lord is also Baal in Hebrew? And that if you invoke the name as a capital L-O-R-D, you're mm -hmm. diminishing that with a replacement. And it says in scripture that uh, the northern tribe were uh, given a time to re uh, repent in Asher, but they didn't repent from what from worshiping Baal, the Lord. Now, okay, so I you, apologize you for to, using the word. You need to come to know his name. Yeah. Quit calling a diminishing thing over yeah. his name. If you do, he's going to complete what he started in you because you're not denied his name. Don't deny it. Quit using that stuff that is yeah. Hellenized and replaced. It's evil. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm okay. kind of in a transition on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, now, David, I'm, I want to thank you for the word and Ariel, and I want to thank you for your approach on it, too. Uh, because that's always it's a difficult topic, and I know I've been you know absolutely fried on coals for raising that topic before, but I'm going to raise it again because David is very accurate on that. And the mm -hmm. thing is with with this, um, and this is something that it's like we were we had a discussion about this in Ireland, and I just told him I said, look, the name is not revealed to everybody. The name is only revealed to the people that Yah wants to pull pull aside into the remnant. It's not revealed to everybody, and and the, the people and you know. So when the name is revealed, it's something you want to ask yourself in your heart about where you are on the name, because with the, with this I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, when it was revealed to me, I'll, I'll just share this with you. When this name was revealed to me, I was like, yeah, okay, great, good. Uh, okay, yeah. I mean, it, it, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything. 
But, but Jan tended that it be revealed to me for his purposes and the way he wanted to have it revealed. And the longer I've been here behind this name, the longer I've been under this name, the longer I've understood this name, the more I understand that the name is everything. I mean, this is who, this is his reputation. This is his character. This is, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, you have not, you have not, not denied my name. And when I think about the people, like we went to a tour group uh, in Britain and they were like, you can't say the name. Whatever you do, you cannot say the name. You can't even, you can't make any reference to it. Well, okay. So, I mean, so what are you guys doing? You're standing around talking about how many angels you can get on the head of a pin. So what? At the end of the day, what? What is he? What? What? Where, where have you arrived? You know, well, I'll tell you what you've done. You've sat there and you've done circles around Heathrow, you know, and you never got into the airport. You know, you just you're, you're just continuing to do laps and laps and laps. You never get into the airport. And it's the same thing when you, no matter how you look at it. And you went to the bin because the sun is getting into it. Uh, how's she getting into it? Well, Helen, hold on there. Hold on, Helen. Okay, thank you. Gotcha. Okay. So coming back here. So anyway, Ariel, so what I'm saying about this is that when you see that that's what's going on, you know, so here you come, you have the Jews come out with you with the ineffable name doctrine. Don't you dare say the name. And in fact, in Israel, it's a death offense if you say the name. And who are they to tell you that you can't say the name? Show me the scripture. Show you. Look, we published 87 books in the Sefer. There's 1.5 million words. Surely you can find the verse that says, thou shalt not say the name. Yeah, and I, and I, I do appreciate everything you're saying, and I repent entirely of calling him the Lord. It was Yahweh. And I, I do, I'm in a transition between that world and this world. And, yeah. and all the stuff that I was trained to say as a child. And so I do um, sometimes struggle. And, and I'm reading the Sefer and I struggle with all the names and I have to go look them up. What is, you know. Well, Ariel, listen, there's 3,100 names that have been transliterated in the Sefer. You're responsible to have memorized all 3,100 of them. <laughs> first, the first week, the first week that you started into this fellowship. And okay. if you don't have them. Then we're gonna we're gonna put your hand over the fire here. <laughs> yeah, but here's here's another thing that happened with that group, and I had gone away from that group for some time before they were destroyed, and then I came back to Toronto, and so I wanted to go see them. It was so interesting how the Lord brought me back to, or Yah brought me back, because um, I I ended up staying with this Greek lady, who. You know, God bless her. She was trying her best. But um, I, I asked her one night to babysit my son so that I could go back to this group. And that night, they, they um, I, you know, I had gone to see them during the day and then said I wanted to come. There must have been a big angel walk in with me because everything started clicking and going off when I went to see them during the day. And then that night, I went back to that group. And when the woman, was, they were trying to say, the what was commonly known as the lord's prayer um to bring her back out of this there was a spirit a force came on her and forced her spirit back out of her body and then manifested for us to see and it looked exactly like the catholic pictures of jesus with the two fingers pointed up oh yeah 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 yeah. 
that that thing manifested over her and she couldn't come back into her body and then and and eventually that ended and we were visiting after and I said what was that that we saw and they said it was they laughed and said it was Mikhailzadek and I had a sense that whatever it was was very evil and so I didn't know who Mikhailzadek was and I wanted to just get out of there and start finding things out so then I went back to this Greek lady and I said what do you think of spirits well she was freaked out and she started reading all her her thing that she believed in was the word of God does not go void so that was what she had and so she started reading scripture and we'd read it I'd read a chapter she'd read a chapter well the thing that stuck with me was Leviticus 20 that the penalty for dealing with psychics is death and that's what turned me on to the path back to yeah mm-hmm. and well, even, even the I'm jehovah's gonna... witness bible has that <laughs> uh yeah 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 but uh yeah so here you see here you see i'm showing you here on the whiteboard yeah okay so this word here is the name Esau. Now, with this word being Esau, the way they spell it in the Hebrew text is they put a patak under here like this. Okay, Esau. Now, but it's not really because what this is, is depending on how you want to pronounce this ayin, but if we were to pronounce this ayin as yay, yay, and then this is sa, not sha, and then this is u. Now, technically, the correct pronunciation of this in the in the Hebrew is more like uh, more. It would be more like uh, su hasu. But this is Yesu, and the Romans wrote it like this. Okay. Yesu. Now, this also uh, is uh, very interesting because, of course, this name in the Irish Gaelic is, I forget how they spell it, it's something like O-E, something like this, but it's pronounced Esau. And in the Arabic, it's like this. Isa. Okay. So this person that we have been taught, this construct out of Roman Catholicism, is based on this. Now the Greeks turned around and said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to add the Greek S at the end. So for instance, there was a Mesopotamian god who was known as yeah, 
like this. And the Greeks said, well, we're not going to pronounce it yeah, we're going to pronounce it ao. And then we're going to add our S. Okay. So this Yezu became Yesus in Greek. And then, well, let's just add that to it. You see? You see that? Mm -hmm. And so the question I have to ask people is, did Miriam name her son Esau? No. And I think the answer is overwhelmingly, not a chance. But by the time the Romans were done changing the name, it became Esau. And so then the question becomes, all right, well, what is his true name? Well, the true name is Yahusha. Yahusha. I'm not going to get into the justification for that, but that's the true name. Mashiach never gave up when Hasatan tempted him. He did not sell his rights. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I agree with that. So he is not Esau. He's not with the jade. The jade never came to existence till the 16th century, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. It was 17th century, actually. 17th? Okay. Yeah, the first time the first time the jade was used in any publication ever was in 1709. And it was a forged New Testament that used the J as Jesus. And it was burned, by the way. The guys went to jail for writing it. And then the J was later adopted in the 1789 Benjamin Blaney uh, Bible. He used J for Jesus, which was 100 years after the Glorious Revolution, the Germanic treatment of the J. So, yeah, it was it was way late. It was, you know, 18th, 18th century is when it came in. And uh, I mean, the J was in use in other in other parts. But and when you're talking about in scripture, the first known use of the J in scripture is 1709. So, um, you know, so anyway, so here you see this stuff, right? And, you know, and in this construct that has been built, um, you know, what was it built on, right? It was built on a picture of Cesare Borgia and that they were calling, that they were, that they were labeling a, a, a fancified name of Esau, a fancy way of saying Esau. And in the meantime, they're totally burying the truth about Yahusha. And they're burying the fact that he came in the name of the father. No one knew his name. They didn't recognize him. They buried the name. Of course, I think Yah had a big part of burying the name too, because he intended for there to be a small remnant. He's not intending for there to be a huge remnant. He intends there to be a small remnant. And this is why the name is, has been so carefully put away. It's always been there for the knowing. And in fact, everyone has known it. There have been publications that have gone all the way back into the Sumerian record and the and the you know and the Aramaic record and the Egyptian record and the the, uh, the tribes in North America and all their records. I mean, it, it, the record goes on and there. It's never been a generation that didn't know the name Yah, Yahoo, Yao, Yahua. Never been a time that the name has been unknown. It's been known the whole time. And people, but people deny it and people deny it all the time and they deny it. A lot of the reason they deny it is because they don't love the truth. That's a big reason why they deny it. They don't want to know the truth. Tell me any story, but the truth. I'll buy anything, but the truth. Don't tell me the truth. Give me something fake. Oh, we can use that. Okay. I'm good to go with that one. I'll use the fake name, but I'm not using the real one. 
And so this, you know, again, I mean, we kind of harp, harp around on this thing. And I don't want to get too far dogmatic on it because you guys have heard me on this a billion times. But let's just say that when you look at the end of that Aharonic blessing, the end of that Aharonic blessing is, I will put my name upon you and your children. That's the end of the blessing. I will put my name upon you and your children. Well, okay then. If my people who are, I, I don't know how many times I heard, I must have heard 100,000 preachers. If my people who are called by my name. Okay. Well, who are these people that are called by his name? Because before you're going to tell me who these people are that are called by his name, why don't you tell me what his name is? Can we start there? Victor, how's it going? Buddy Hold on. Yes. There are some people that are trying to get in. I don't see him. Okay. I'll see. I'll find out about it. Thank you. I'm sorry I interrupted. Okay, no problem. Okay. Go, uh, hi, Ellie. Okay, go ahead, Victor. Hey, brother. How y'all doing? Shalom to everybody here. Shalom. From Texas, South Texas. Um, I just had a, a question, uh, and I'll let you know as the reason why, but uh, a question is, um, and of course, ask for sources. The New Testament, would we say the New Testament, um, of course, the Renewed Covenant, was it all written in Greek, or was it actually originally written in Hebrew? Uh, and translated into Greek? That's a great question, Victor. Thank you for that question. The answer is, is that it was primarily written in Greek, but it was conceived in Hebrew. So if you recall, most of the disciples could not read or write. There we go. Okay. So what you see is that the, the gospel message that was passed on Matthew, Mark, and, uh, and Luke was done via word of mouth. It was done via word of mouth. Now, I believe it was John Mark, who was actually a disciple of Peter, that wrote the gospel of Mark in Alexandria. And he probably wrote that in the Canaanite language and not in Greek. The Canaanite language is used by the Coptic church even to this day. And then you see uh, Lucas, who was a, uh, a disciple of Paul, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and that was almost assuredly written in Greek. The Gospel of Matthew was probably given via oral testimony. In fact, Eusebius records it from oral testimony in what he calls the Gospel according to the Hebrews. And uh, he had a 32 notes in Hebrew that he left out the gospel as he transcribed it into both greek and latin but that was given from an oral record from an oral record now before it was completely constructed in greek it was completely constructed in aramaic and the aramaic text is very very close to the hebrew text and the aramaic text was completed in the second century uh, of the they had com a complete version of the new testament in aramaic Second, second Timothy almost, you know, did not exist in the Greek record until like the fifth or sixth century. It was way, way late. Second Timothy was way, way, way late. And, uh, and so and they, they just. It didn't exist until when again? Uh, they had no Greek record of it. There's no Greek artifact of second Timothy from the second, third or fourth century. 
none. Uh, but uh, uh, but even though Revelation, uh, the the earliest copy is a second century copy or second century fragment, it and and it was in Greek. Revelation, each verse in Revelation has a direct citation to a Hebrew reference, to a Hebrew text reference. So to say Revelation was written in Greek ignores the fact that every single verse was taken from Hebrew. Now, the, the book of Hebrews was probably written in Greek. It appears to be a very eloquent document written in Greek. But when you're talking about the Gospels, the Gospels were conceptualized in Hebrew. Now, this becomes a real problem because when you look at the Gospel of John, okay, the Gospel of John has reflective thinking that is also written out in the book of Philo, some of Philo's writings. Philo was a philosopher in Egypt who lived before Mashiach and outlived Mashiach. He was a witness to the, to the crucifixion and outlived him. And he had a lot of writing that was, you know, a, a philosophical writing, you might call it. But in his, in his writing, uh, what you, when you get into the Gospel of John, you've got this real difficult issue because you have this word logos, okay? And to try to say, well, logos basically um, can be best construed as word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with Elohim, and the word was Elohim. Elohim was with the word in the beginning. Well, uh, that is not a sufficient recount of the word logos, okay? And so I'm not sure, I'm not sure at all what the Hebrew word would be there. Now, this is one of the real problems. These are the problems that you run into whenever you look at the Hebrew text versus a downstream from the Hebrew text. When you get a Hebrew text that is taken from the Greek, and I mean, I can kind of tell them right off the bat. As soon as I'm looking at a Hebrew text, I can tell that was taken downstream from the Greek text. Because when you have words like logos and you have other words that are very, very problematic in the Greek, because when you start dealing with them in the Hebrew, you've got a, a whole you know, list of words that could be there instead, instead of what you see there, what, instead of what you see in the Greek, a whole roster of words that could be there. And that becomes a real difficulty because when you're talking about, when you're talking about the, this idea of what is logos, well, you know, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it wasn't the word yahi, right? In the beginning, yahi, brashit yahi. You know, I mean, these are the kinds of things that, you know, we don't know because the depth of the, like, for instance, you know, logos is the, the Greek foundation word for logic, right? So if we talk about the logic of the stars, we talk about astrologic or astrologia, astrology. If we're talking about the law of the straws, well, that's going to be uh, of the stars. That's nomos, right? Nomos, astronomos astronomy astronomy so the astronomy law of the stars astrology logic of the stars or the functionality of the stars so if this is the case with the logos then how do we say that that's simply the word right somebody just took a square you know big big box and said that's big enough to handle this put it all in there and put it out there right yeah so so this, this is why, you know, to, when we sit and look back, back and forth at these concepts, I believe that these things were conceptualized in Hebrew. And because they were conceptualized in Hebrew, the true answers are there. But you can't find the true answers because it got shifted over to Greek. 
So you can't find the true answers because it got shifted over to Greek and the Greek's a good discussion, but it leaves you in the dark as to all the elements. When we get truth in the Hebrew and we get a kind of a, uh, well, look, you know, in Russian, they have two words for truth, okay? You have istana and you have pravda. And istana is fundamental or absolute truth. Pravda is situational truth. Hey, are you going to the store today? Yeah, I went to the store today. That's pravda. Yeah, that's true. You went to the store. No question, it's true. But when you talk about absolute truth, that's istana. Did Yah create the heavens and the earth? Yes, that's absolute truth. That's a different form of truth than situational truth. Okay? And so you get situational truth in the Greek, but you not, don't necessarily get absolute truth. And of course, the Greek was used because Constantine was the ruler over all of this and decided he was going to concretize this into a, a catch-all a catch melting pot of religion that he was going to call Christianity. That was going to capture sun worship, fertility god worship, moon goddess worship, fish god worship, uh, Molech worship, Baal worship, all that other stuff. All that stuff was going to be thrown into the hodgepot, and then we'll call this Christianity. You know, so the Pope runs around with a fish head on. Yeah. Does he not? Yeah. He, he runs around with his fish hat, and nobody says, gee, what's what's the guy doing in the fish hat? Why are you know, I mean, has any, has any Catholic asked the question, why is he in the fish hat? Yeah, no, I, uh, the reason why I bring this up, uh, and thank you for that, I took almost every word, at least I tried, but, uh, but yeah, uh, it's because there was a small, you know, argument, I, I do believe I may have been wrong, but not entirely, given the fact now that you mentioned, because uh, I, I, um, I guess once in a while, I'll go to my dad's church, uh, who on Saturdays have, you know, these Bible studies and stuff, so which was really good. Uh, I was able to share with them, you know, some of my commentary on some of the teachings that you pre presented to us in regards to uh, Genesis 1-1 uh, with the sevenfold doctrine. And in just that one sentence, I showed them the Bob in there. And, you know, um, you know, as Yahusha, I mean, the language they speak, right? I was mentioning Christ and, you know, so that way they wouldn't look at me kind of funny or anything, right? And so, but I was, you know, letting, letting them know, like, you know, there's, the bob there what you know there has to be some uh, what does the bob mean right it's the nail that was impelled into the sun you see it you know nailed to the earth right could that be some symbolic thing there for them and i was kind of like you know probing some questions with them around there but it was a really good conversation and then in the next day uh you know i went and visited another study they had on sunday and i was talking to a gentleman there and uh, and I kind and I mentioned to him, I was like, well, you know, my opinion, I believe the the New Testament may have have actually been uh, written in the Hebrew. Um, and I started talking to him, and the pastor of the church there uh, overheard me, um, and he kind of, you know, you know, jumped into the conversation, and it seemed as if, um, you know, there was like, uh, I don't know, it seemed like for him when I mentioned that, and he overheard it, it seemed like I was challenging his theology um and so you know different conversations started to stir up uh you know and and then i started mentioning about the you know the commandments and you know even the verse where jesus yahusha right talks not one yod or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the torah right and things like that um you know i was basically kind of just preaching to the man and then uh, 
he just, you know, he just cut me off and just say, Hey, we got to get on with the presentation that I have. And, you know, I was just like, it's fine. You know, like I kind of just shrugged it off. It was, it was okay. I think I was just there for that moment just to, you know, share something. Got to uh, drop a little seed there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, seed. I mean, if you go back and you look at the work of, of Eusebius, you will see, I mean, he talks about, you know, this is Jerome, right? Eusebius Hieronymus. He talks about the fact that he was delivered the New Testament in Hebrew, but he wrote it in Greek. And, you know, and so, but when you talk about, you know, again, and now what about the works of Paul? Did Paul speak Greek? That's a question. Okay, yeah. here he is. He gets accused and they're going to, they're going to give him the death penalty. Okay. You're accused. And now we're going to give you the death penalty. And he defends himself in what language? Hebrew. He defended himself in Hebrew. Now I want to ask you a question, Victor. I don't know if you speak a second language or not, but if you do speak a second language and you're accused of murder and you're facing the death penalty, are you going to use your rusty second language to defend yourself? No, I'm going to speak the language I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. No. also, when he gets knocked down and he's blinded, right? Mashiach speaks to him in what language? In the Hebrew language. He speaks to him in the Hebrew language. That's what it says right in the book of Acts. If it was written in Greek, that's fine. But it says he spoke to him in the Hebrew language. Yeah. And, and now, you know what? That's a really good thing you mentioned, because I even mentioned to him about the situation with... Uh, when uh, when Peter denies Mashiach three times, and on the third time, the lady, before he denies him the third time, she says, "You have the tongue. You have that. You same. You speak the same language as them, as the Mashiach." And you know, well, he denies, and then you know that happens. And then I asked him, you know, well, what is it that, as far as the language that he was speaking, that was different from the people or from the pagans or the Greeks and you know the mixed multitude that was in Israel at the time. You know, what was it that Peter was speaking, that Mashiach was speaking? Was it Greek or, you know? Well, let me ask you this. When you get to Mark 12, 28, okay, the scribes come to Mashiach and they say, tell us, what is the first commandment? Not the greatest commandment. Don't look at Matthew. Look oh, at Mark 12, 28. What right. is the first commandment? And he says to them in Aramaic, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh, Echad, no chance there is no chance, zero chance, that he said that in Aramaic or Greek. There's no chance he said the Shema in Aramaic or Greek. Right, right. It didn't happen. There's no chance he said it in Aramaic or Greek. It's the same thing in Luke 4. He picks up the Isaiah scroll to read, and he's going to read, the Ruach Yahweh Elohim has anointed me. You think he picked up the Isaiah scroll and then read it in Greek? Do you think yeah. they had an Isaiah scroll in Greek? Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned that too. I was talking to him about how, uh, you know, Mashiach went to the synagogues. He read the Hebrew Aramaic block script. He didn't read the Greek and never read it in the Greek tongue. Rather, he never he read it in Greek tongue. Right, right. He may have known it, but he didn't speak it. I mean, right? We see it throughout scripture and we see how it's talking about the yod it's talking about the tittle it's talking about their language their you know you know how do they communicate right and and the shema that was a perfect one i think i'll mention that one mark 12 28 
the Shema, where is the Shema? Well, you see it all throughout the Torah. You know, Shema Yashael in Deuteronomy, where Moses continuously repeating to them the, the Torah, the commandments. And um, but Luke 4 is another good one, good point. Uh, you know, I'll make sure to go ahead and bring up whenever I'm there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just something to think about. And of course, you know, yeah. I often find I'll, I'll just share this with you, Victor, and then we got, we got to move on. Yeah. I often find that um, uh, people who are real quick to defend the New Testament in Greek, mm-hmm. you know, they're very partial to the Septuagint for the Old Testament, but they don't want to admit that they're partial to the Septuagint for the Old Testament because then they have to admit they read the Apocrypha. And they don't want to admit that they read the Apocrypha, so they, they're very hush-hush about the fact that it was all Greek. So, you know, I read a Greek Old Testament and a Greek New Testament, and I have a polyglot, and it's Greek, 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 because I'm a Berean, right? I'm a Berean. I study the Greek New Testament because I'm a Berean. Well, you be a Berean all you want, but when you're a Berean, that kind of leaves you short on the Old Testament. So what are you doing in terms of how you're studying the Old Testament? Well... We read the Septuagint, and the Septuagint, I'm telling you, has problems. It has problems, and, you know, it's got a chain of custody problem. They didn't care for it correctly. And as a consequence, you get a whole bunch of different versions of the Septuagint. And some of those, I mean, some people swear by it. It's like, oh, no, the Septuagint was right about in terms of, you know, the additional 100 years for each patriarch. Well, yeah. it's convenient that every patriarch's got an additional 100 years exactly. You know, every one of them's got an additional 100 years. Well, convenient. Uh, and it, of course, destroys the rhythm of 6,000 years from Adam because we've got 6,000 years before we get to Mashiach, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm going to let yeah. it go with that, Victor. But- yeah, thank you. Thank you for all that information. I'll make sure to look into it again. Uh, one last thing, sorry, but I want to share a dream I had, actually. Um it uh it was yeah it was last night it was so uh it was comforting to me uh and assuring to me about the ecclesia about the assembly well in this dream i you know i was looking at a like a green pasture sort of in a way and uh around it uh were just bushes and brush green bushes and brush as far as the perimeter of this area i was in and there was beautiful trees within it and um it seemed it rained heavily and um it made these puddles of uh like little small lakes mini lakes i guess you could say like rivers also um and um i just noticed myself on a cart being taken to like different areas of that place right that was secluded it was like the wilderness and set apart place really i guess you could say and um a heavy rain had just come, you know, it was provided for us and people were just coming in and, and I was there amongst, you know, some of the brethren on here. It, it, I didn't see your faces, but I knew when I was in that place, I was in the Sefer family. Um, and so I knew that these were Torah believers. They were, these were Mashiach and Yahusha, Yahweh believers, right? I was there. And so people were getting baptized, uh, you know, and there were people that were learning to get baptized and people were just coming to the faith, coming to the Torah. And uh, I just want to share that, you know, with everybody here, hoping, giving a sense of hope that uh, although this whole recession, you know, that's going to happen soon. And, uh, you know, this persecution, I know that that Yah is going to provide, you know, uh, set apart and secluded place where, you know, we're just going to be, you know, one with him. Right. 
unison with with the father and the son so yeah yes there you go uh so yeah just wanted to share that but shalom to everybody well and, thanks victor and and keep up the faith brother keep us yes, keep sir. us posted as to how the war goes because you've walked onto yeah. the battlefield now <laughs> yeah so i'm looking forward to that next uh saturday study so you know pray for me in that as well we'll do. Well. Thank you. we'll do thank you. okay take care all right i'm gonna come back let me go to tina real quick hey tina what's up hello shalom dr p and welcome home uh thank you um in your opinion when do you think that the church stopped even teaching the Old Testament and became yeah. New Testament church because how can these people be sealed with Yahweh when you have to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament? You understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, well, it boggles my mind. Well, I can tell you that when you have churches that are that are exclusively New Testament, they don't know it, but they're actually in the Marcion heresy. You know, Marcion is the one who declared that there's a new God entirely in the New Testament. And there are many people who believe that. They don't want to tell you that, that they don't articulate it to you. But they believe that the true name of the creator is Jesus. That's who created the heavens and the earth, and that's who created everything else. And and that is, you know, that he is the Godhead, and that's it. It's Jesus. There's nothing else. And there's no read, there's no need to read anything in the Old Testament because it's irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is what you have in the New Testament. And of course, if you take out all the Old Testament references in, in the Sefer, we have them all indented, where you can see how much of the Old Testament's in the New Testament. It becomes very obvious. They they got a lot of cutout to do. Because the whole Christian church is like that. They don't need to know the Old Testament. And that's just my opinion. You need to read the Old Testament so you can understand what you're reading in the New Testament. The Christian church is like that. And when these pastors go to seminary, or even when they get out of seminary, I'm sure they know the name. Nala, please. I'm sure they know the name. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Maybe I think they're probably taught Yahweh. And, uh, you know, so you no spend pastor's year. ever been curious about the Apocrypha or the name or anything else that they've heard. They've never been nope. curious about that. They're, what they're curious about is how they can imitate Joel Olstein and get as big a church and as big a house. I mean, yeah, I shouldn't say that's really the case with all of them, but that's the case with a lot of them. That's just really sad to me because these people aren't, in my opinion, going to be marked with the name of Yah because they're listening to somebody that doesn't even care as far as I'm concerned because they just want it, like you said, keep the pews full, keep the ears tickled and the money coming in. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, this is why our work is really hard uh, when we, when, you know, I mean, it's easier to talk to an atheist than it is to talk to a Christian. I believe that. And because a Christian has been given 140 defenses for everything you say. And when yeah. you tell them, you know, gee, have you thought about a seventh day of rest? What are you trying to do? Put me under legalism? I'm not under the law. 
Well, and that's why you're working. That's why you're working three sixty five seven. You know, twenty four seven three sixty five because you're not under the law. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it's it is sad, but you know what, Tina, we just you know, um, stay gentle and at peace with your brother and share a kind word with them. Okay, absolutely. And also one last thing, and then I'll I'll leave you be. Uh, I seen last night that Biden has purchased two hundred ninety million dollars worth of radiation sickness pills. Yeah, that's going to keep everybody from being destroyed in a nuclear blast. You know, yeah. right there. that'll do it. You know, Brian, thank you. Thank you very much and welcome home. Thanks, Tina. Right. You know, I, uh, Paul shared a good poster with me yesterday. He says, I self-identify as non-binary. There you go. Non-binary. <laughs> Absolutely. Non-binary. Yeah, that's me. Okay. Thanks, Tina. Hey, Joy. Right. How are you? I'm okay. Um, I'm so grateful for this group, Dr. P. I've been really suffering a lot. Um, my back is crushed and I can't get it fixed. And there are times where the pain is so excruciating, which it's been this week. And everyone has come together and praying for me and I can feel the prayers. And I was so grateful when you were gone that you took us on your trip with you and we got to see a lot of things by you but it's been really hard and I have a hard time asking for help or asking for prayer but I have been in such excruciating pain since before the day of atonement I can't sleep can't do anything the pain is just like all absorbing I know that back pain I know that back pain well I know it's just incredible so we're going to pray for you now, Joy. Okay, and that's then, awesome. And then, and then when we're done with this, I want you to I want you to throw a rope over one of those beams that you have up there over your head, tie your feet to it, and hang yourself by your feet for at least an hour. I'm, doing, I'm just, I'm just. I'm, <laughs> you no, know, I've tried those inversion machines. <laughs> I, know <laughs> I also wanted to say, as far as a king goes. You yeah. know, in First Samuel, in chapter eight, you know, it talks about how what's going to happen if you have a king. I mean, chapter eight, what's going to happen point. if you have a king? And, you know, Samuel tried or Samuel, how do you say it? Shaul. 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 Trying to convince yeah. it. Tell them, no, you, you don't want this. And finally, Yah said, give him a king. Yeah, and what after, did he say after that? I'll give you a king, and then don't pray to me for to not have a king after this because I'm not going to listen to your prayer. Once you, once you get a king, you're stuck. That's the way it goes. Right, and so now all I'm doing is waiting for our king to return. Yeah, a real king. Right. <laughs> not Burger King. Not Burger yeah. King. We don't. We don't no. want that guy. No. No. Okay. And Samuel, yeah, really. Um, okay, Joy, we need to, we need to pray over it. you. We need to pray okay. with you. Now, now I want to ask you a question, okay, before we pray. With your back, do, do you believe that Yah has the capability to heal you? Yes, I, I've been praying for that for years. Well, I just want to ask you the question. Do you believe that he has, I mean, here you're talking, the maker of heaven and earth. Could he heal you if he so desired? Yes, he could. Maybe I'm unworthy of it. 
it's not a question of being worthy or unworthy because you have to remember that sometimes when we're given pain and suffering in this life, we're given it for a reason, you know, okay. and, and we don't win. Sometimes we don't know the reason, but it's because our soul is at around or something. And it's not a question of you being unworthy sister. It's not a question of you being unworthy. That's not the question. Yeah. I may okay. have something else for you, but, but in the meantime, I want you to give in your heart, you need to believe that God does have the capability. You don't have to believe that he's going to heal you right now, but you do need to believe that if Yah desired to, he could. Oh, yes, I know that. Okay. So that if you're holding on to any part of that pain yourself, not just your physical body doing it, but your mind is holding on to that pain. We're going to pray that that goes away. That any part of your mind that's holding on to the prayer goes, that goes away, okay? And that Yah will bless you in accordance with his good measure, okay? So let's pray, okay? okay? Heavenly Father, we come together as a group now to lift up our sister Joy, who is just suffering, Father, with one of those ailments. And you know what it is, Father, that, that back pain, that back pain that comes on when nerves are crushed and, and the spine collapses and there's... There's nothing to soften between bone and nerve and bone and nerve. And it's just pain, pain, pain. But Father, and because you know this, Father, we pray now that you would take a look on your, on your daughter, Joy, there. Look on her now, Father. And with your heavenly mercy and your heavenly kindness, oh, Father, rebuild those structures that, are, that, are, uh, that would be protecting those nerve endings from all the grinding and all the pain and all the, the, the suffering that goes through there that she would have an easing of the pain, that you would miraculously bestow her to a non-painful environment, Father. And that suddenly for a while, and not just a little while, Father, but for really for the rest of her life, Father, that you would alleviate this back pain to remove it from her. Father, we pray in particular that anything that is in Joy's heart or mind that is inflicting or adding to the pain that she has in her back, that you would make that all disappear, Father. Let this sister know that she is completely forgiven, that she is not worthy of pain, but worthy of a pain-free life, worthy of a life and life more abundantly in you, Father, and that there is no reason for her to hold on to any reason whatsoever to increase or to allow this pain to exist in her back, and that all that would remain the only thing that would remain would be the actual physical causation of the back pain. Father, we pray that there would be both a miraculous diagnosis and a miraculous cure as your hand moves to take away the pain from her in her back, Father. So we pray that you would indwell her with your Ruach HaKodesh now, Father. Indwell her with a cleansing. and Indwell her with forgiveness. And indwell her now with healing, Father, from the tip of her toes to the top of her head, that you would bring back, a, you would bring upon her a merciful and complete healing of this injury, and that you would be able to walk pain-free from your Father. Uh, may your name be glorified, Yahweh. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, Joy. It's going to happen. Okay, sister. Okay. Thanks. You, you, are, you are worthy of a pain-free life.
Thank you. Okay. All right, Catherine, we're coming back to you, sister. What's going on? Uh, I'm back. Yeah. No. Um, right. I was going to read that letter again, which you read at our little conference. I just thought it would be a good reminder. Um, oh, this is the I letter to Elizabeth the first. Yes. Go ahead and read yes. that. Let me, now, let me give a little preface to everybody here. This is Elizabeth okay. the first writing back to the Pope. And the Pope, uh, the Pope was, of course, denouncing her for her Protestantism and for allowing England to fall away from Catholicism. And this is what she wrote back. Okay, go ahead and read it, Catherine. Right. Um, this was written, Queen Elizabeth I on religion in 1559. She wrote to the five bishops of the Pope. Sirs, oh, sorry. Let me just move with the lights because I have difficulty reading at night. Sirs, as you entreaty for us to listen to you, we waver it, yet do return you this our answer. Our realm and subjects have been long wanderers walking astray whilst they were under the tuition of Romanish pastors who advised them to own a wolf for their head in lieu of a careful shepherd. Those inventions, heresies, and Sicianisms be so numerous that the flock of Christ have fled on poisonous, have fed on poisonous shrubs for want of wholesome pastures. And whereas you hit us and our subjects in the teeth that the Romanish church first placed the Catholic faith within our realms, the records and the chronicles of our realms testify to the contrary and your Romanish idolatry maketh you liars. Witnesses the ancient monument of Gildas unto which both foreign and domestic have gone into pilgrimage there to offer. This author testifieth Joseph of Arimathea to be the first preacher of the word of God within our realms. Long after that, when Austin, meaning Saint Augustine, came from Rome, this our realm had bishops and priests therein, as is well known to the wise and learned of our realm, by woeful experience, how your church entered therein by blood. They being martyrs for Christ and put to death because they denied Rome's usurped authority. So basically this is telling us what Stephen has been teaching us for these years has been truth. This is an official record 
of Joseph of Arimathea coming to the British Isles, presumably with the biblical family. Now, on doing some research, I've sent Dr. Pigeon some more um, more clues on how to get further documents. And I've happened to find the document of first fruits done by Joseph of Arimathea. I can only think that this document contains the first Christians following the feast days of Yah. But hopefully you'll come back and we, instead of running around the countryside, we can start searching in record offices. And Dr. Pigeon, I'm so itching to get to Kew Gardens because I really want to get this document of first fruits to you as soon as possible. So I'm going to start saving my pennies. So well, I Catherine, I, to... I've got to tell you, we did as much research as we could in the month. We could have spent another, you know, we could have spent a month in York. We could have spent two months, in, you know, a, a month in Cambridge, a month in Manchester, two months in London, you know, a month in Exeter. I mean, there, we, there's lots of places we could have been to just go through, go through, go through, go through. But at some it point, is... I had to come back home. I know. Look, I'm quite willing to start saving my pennies uh, and, and find a hotel near Kew Gardens and try and get this particular record for you because I think it could be one of the most important in the station. Well, um, if you, if you find know. it, that would be fantastic. And, and I just wanted to say, you know, and thank you for your help on this too, Catherine. I've got like, we, you know, we came home with several cases of books. Right, that we picked I'm up. Sure, your- <laughs> and I've got to get this 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 book book to you. I've got to find it. I'll be doing that in the next month or so. Um, but yeah, if I can start saving my little pennies, whether it takes me a couple of months, because to get to London for me um, is a difficult situation. Well, you just catch, you know, you catch a train down there to, uh, down to Watford and and down into Houston. And then from there, you can catch the central tube down to, uh, you know, Baker Street. And for Baker Street, Mm. just put it on. I'm just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's just, it's just what I might have to do is literally, it's going to be expensive, but actually get a taxi to a hotel near. No, no, no. We're going to pray about all that, Catherine. Just let me know when you're ready to go. We'll get something to work out. Okay. Excuse me, Dr. Pigeon. Yes. When you guys were down there, did you find any references to Yahusha traveling with Joseph of Arimathea? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, thanks, Tina. And I can tell you, first of all, when we were in Glastonbury, we, we, we punched a big hole in Glastonbury. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we took out the drill bit, drew through the bottom of the bathtub, and the whole bathtub drained. And so Glastonbury is just like, forget about it. It's, uh, you know, that whole record is just, you know, fake. I mean, everything about it is just not true. And the, um, so what you're talking about there is, first of all, but I mean, it is kind of incredible because here's what we ran into. And now that you're asking the question, Catherine and I have had long discussions about this. We went up to this thing called the Tor. There's a hill, there's a hill overlooking Glastonbury. It's called the Tor. And it rises up as a hill and there's a big tower up there called St. Michael's Tower. 
And that looks over an area called the Somerset Flats. The Somerset Flats were probably during the time of Joseph Arimathea, completely covered in water. They completely covered in water. And they were, um, there's a chance that they may, that may actually have been, quote unquote, the Sea of Galilee. And so what you're looking at is you're seeing, you know, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon Britain's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of Yah on Britain's mountain seen? Right. This is the, the passage that's from the song Jerusalem. And the question is, and it, it, it's a very good question. Now, was he in Glastonbury? No. But was he in Avalon? That's a different issue. And Joseph of Arimathea was in Avalon. And Avalon, of course, is very carefully disguised now because one of the rivers has been rerouted and dried up. And this was the River Tough. I think that's, I think that's the name of the river, the River Tough. Anyway, it's a river that runs in downtown Car Cardiff. Now, let me tell you, Cardiff is a very interesting animal because the name of Cardiff is actually Cardeed in, in Welsh. It's Cardeed, and it means the place of the agreement. What agreement? Well, an agreement was made when Hadrian came into the land, that Roman emperor, that the kings, the Silesian kings or Silurian kings there in Cardiff, they said, look, We'll let you Romans control the land on the condition that we are the kings, that we will supply the bloodstock for the kings. So after Hadrian, the Caesars in Rome were Britons. And this includes, of course, Constantine. Constantine was born in York. And so, you know, so this becomes this interface between Britain and Rome begins right back then. And it's been often, we want you here, we don't want you here. We want you here, we don't want you here. I mean, this is the condition right now with Brexit. We want you here, we don't want you here. This is what's going on. So it's crazy. But now, did was Mashiach in the land? I think there was a time that Mashiach was in the land. And in fact, there may be a whole bunch of events, like, you know, the event of walking on the water? That description is actually more consistent with the water off the water of Cornwall than it is, than it is in a lake that they call Kinneret in Israel, right? Wow. And, you know, and yeah, so there's other things there that are like, hmm, okay, well, so we don't know the whole story, but what we do know is that there's plenty of record and we saw it in, uh, in the, um, uh, down in the Glen Morgan at a place called Clanwood Major. They know the church was formed there in the first century, like around 36 AD is when it was formed. And, the, and then when you get into Avalon, when you get into, it, it's called Sophia Gardens in, in, in Cardiff. And you can see where the triangle used to be. And the Cardiff Castle is built right there. And of course, you know, the Windsors came along and put a huge wall around the Cardiff Castle. So this is a real castle. But when you get inside, it's a very small castle up on a hill. And uh, this was built on this island that was called Avalon between these two rivers and the Sevens. Now, isn't it interesting that the estuary would be called the, the Sevens? Right. The estuary is called the Sevens, and which I've also found interesting. And of course, the Sea of Galilee would be across this water, you know, uh, and Glastonbury wasn't even formed. I mean, there was nothing there except water until about the ninth century. And then when it started drying up, they formed the Abbey. And then Aaron's uh, thorn, you know, the, the so-called uh, rod of Aaron that Aaron supposedly put in the ground there. I mean, I think Aaron had that rod, but it wasn't put in the ground in Glastonbury. 
they have to re they, they can't first of all you can't stick anything you can't take like that plant that uh, that hawthorn plant from the middle east and stick it in the ground and it'll grow it won't do that in britain you have to graft it into a black hawthorn and then it has about 30 years of life and you have to graft it in again so they, that's what they have been doing and they've been doing that since about 1123 when the knights templar brought this hawthorn in it wasn't brought in by joseph of arimathea it was brought in by the knights templar the story about Arthur and Guinevere and so on and so forth was made up by the monks when the abbey burned down. The abbey burned down. They needed a new roof. So they made up a story about Arthur and Guinevere. So almost everything that's been that's been done, and they readily admit it in, in the archives right there at, uh, at Glastonbury. So you had a huge, impressive abbey that was there and it was built on mythology and so on and so forth. Henry VIII burned it to the ground. And when the abbot, when the abbot there would not go along with what he was talking about, they executed him and five of his followers up on at the tour, and then burned it to the ground, and then bombed it with cannons and stole some of its brick. So now it's just a ruin, right? And uh, but but even though that's the myth of Glastonbury, it takes away from the truth that happened in Cardiff, that happened in Cardiff, the truth that happened there, and the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, which is there. And the placement of, uh, you know, the Blackfire Priory, which is also, you know, the, the Abbey is all right there. And when you see that in interface with Glen Morgan, which is right down the street, and, you know, Catherine was talking about the, the grave of, you know, supposedly the gravesite of Baruch, which is, you know, another question. The grave, the burial tomb of Mary, which is another question. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, I mean, all these things are all present. All this stuff is present in Wales. But how much is myth? How much is truth? You know, we went out to a place where that uh, Ross took us and he said, you know, in, in 1910, 1912, they did a dig. They found there were white carved limestone in big pillars around this area. So they went out and they did a dig and they found the whole city, found the ruins of the whole city. And they're like, we found a, an ancient Roman fort. And then they got down there and they dug around and they realized this isn't an ancient Roman fort at all. This is an ancient Welsh fort that goes back to the first century. And there's all Welsh markings. There's not a Roman thing here. Oh, it's just Welsh? Bury it. So they covered it again. So then some guys came back 20 years later, dug it out again, found everything again, said, yeah, there it is. And then they buried it again. Yeah. And this is the kind of stuff that goes on in Wales. So it's very difficult. You know, when you're, when you're trying to find a record that's 2,000 years old, it's very difficult to find. It's very difficult to find the... the um, you know, the markers and the stones, the stones get worn away. Unless they take the stones out of the rain and put them inside, they get worn away. Now, one marker that we did see that was really, really keen was the Jeremiah's tomb in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I was just going to ask you about that. That did not have, that did not have uh, Paleo-Hebrew hieroglyphs on it. It had hieroglyphic markings that were describing the journeys. And a, 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 one interpreter has really come up with a very solid interpretation. I think it's very solid showing that, in fact, Jeremiah, the two daughters, and Baruch, and one other person, left from Panis, Egypt. And you, you can see them along by, alongside the ship, and they get on board the ship. There's five of them. They go to Gibraltar, where apparently Baruch died and is buried on, somewhere on Gibraltar. Now, have we been there to, to determine that? No, we haven't. Or did they bring the body with him? We don't know that either. But he died at Gibraltar. And then they come into Ireland, and when they come into Ireland, uh, Teffy, uh, I don't remember her, Teffy, anyway, she ends up becoming uh, the first queen of Ireland. 
and uh, she marries into the royal family there. And then Skoda, the other sister, goes on to marry into Scotland. And so this is the story. And then Jeremiah, and all of this is laid out of Jeremiah's tomb. Well, Jeremiah's tomb is so, I mean, when you get there, you know, you're thinking, isn't this like a national historical site? No, it's not a national historical site. It's just, a. there's a hill over there. Yeah, go up there and visit if you want. Uh, is you had anything in, in mind for preserving it? Nah, the kids can play on there if you want, and you know, do this. And you know, if your dogs want to run through there, go, you know, I mean, there's nothing, there's no preservation at all. Now, finally, the last three years, the, the whole thing is caving in, so they had to put some posts up and stuff, and they've locked it down where you can't go inside the tomb anymore. But you can still get pictures of the hieroglyphs at the front door. But Jeremiah's tomb was the most convincing Paleolithic uh, uh, tomb with a reported record that, that you can find in the area. And of course, we found stones at Margram. We found stones at um, we found stones at uh, Clanwood Major, uh, south of Cowbridge. We found some other evidence of ancient sites. And but you know, did Mashiach walk at Glastonbury? No. Is it the site of witchcraft? Yes. It's so loaded with witchcraft, it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, there was a witchcraft shop. Every other storefront was a witchcraft shop. There were guys in wizard regalia standing out on the streets with magic wands. And, uh, you know, I mean, was, you know, yeah. So we got we got in the middle of the abbey. We're blowing the shofar and pronouncing the name of Yahweh over the place. And so the, you know, the custodian showed up. Uh, you know, you guys need to go blow that shofar somewhere else go take that to a different monument and go do it you can't do it here anymore and i said well you know it's too late we already got it done <laughs> yeah good <laughs> okay sorry well, can i just say something what can i basically the true king arthur was <laughs> king arthur ways uh from wales and he was the direct descendant of Joseph of Arimathea. Right. So if you want to know about the legend of Arthur, don't read the nonsense by the academics and the universities. If you want to know about the true Arthur, that would be King Arthur Ways, the second in Wales. Yeah. And he died around 590 AD which really ended yeah. an era and brought in Rome with his death. Rome came into the British Isles and it changed everything. So then from there, you know, we found out we kind of tied, first of all, I got this incredible gift. Wish I could show it to you, but um, it's a ruler, you know, wooden ruler. And on the backside of it, it has all the Kings of England, <laughs> you know, the rulers of England on the back. But one thing we found out was that there was a, um, there was a King, I think his name was Ethbert. And so <laughs> Ethbert was, was baptized in York in 672 AD, 672. He's baptized in York, which means that the faith had not yet arrived in York. Mm. Remember that Constantine came out of York around 300 AD. So it was, they kind of heard of the stuff, but it wasn't there. It isn't until Ethbert gets there that he's baptized king. And when he's baptized king, he goes down and he builds uh, abbeys in Norwich, down in Norwich and around Beckles and down there in what they call the Broads. So he was down there building and, and setting out the faith in, again, Eastern Britain, right? 
And he was also responsible for ordaining the bishop at St. Paul's in London. So St. Paul's was after his baptism in York. After. Again, once again, these, these pointers, I know these things kind of sound like, well, where are you going with this, Steve? Well, it shows you the progress of the faith through the British Isles and what happened. And that's very important from our point of view, because we need to know when did they lose touch with Shabbat? When did they lose? Now, the testimony I heard during our conference in Lutterworth, by the way, we had some extremely brilliant people at that conference. You know, it's like you guys, right? The people that are in this group are always extremely sharp. And we had extremely sharp people at that, at that conference, too. So Malcolm showed up with a ton of information. Tony Wright showed up with a ton of information. Tony Wright said that the Shabbat was being practiced in, in Cornwall until the ninth century. It was being practiced in, on the island of Anglesey until the ninth century, right? The Shabbat among the believers. So the, the, the fact of the matter is the Shabbat was the practice of the early church. Rome extinguished it. Rome extinguished it. Okay. That, that alone is, a, is enough of a marker for us to be able to say we need to pull away from Rome to extinguish the Shabbat, to get back with the original faith. Okay. All right. I'll leave it at that. Joni, how are you? Hi, Joni. Hi. There you are. Yeah. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, hi. Yeah, I just wanted to, I've been reading through the book of Jasher and, and just wanted to say thank you. I'm, I'm like up to Jasher 42, 43, but um, the battles when they're residing around Shechem and, and then all the kings come after them and it's battle after battle after battle. The valiantry that, that they displayed and, and especially Judah and his leadership in battle, I, I think it's the first time I really have an appreciation for the for that title, the, you know, the lion of the tribe of, of Judah, it was like, oh, <laughs> now, now that really fits. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that. And um, my cousin Brad is visiting from Florida and he wanted to say hello. This is his first time streaming with us. So I'm going to let Brad say hello. All right. All right. There you are. Yes. Uh I've got a silhouette there because there's uh, sunlight behind me, I guess. So, um, yeah, th this is a great pleasure for me to be uh, participating or, or listening to this uh, session. I just to kind of give you a little background. Um, I was raised a Baptist, um, then went to an interdenominational church in my teenage years. And uh then I found the Adventist church and I started uh, uh, worshiping on Sabbath. And, and it, it seems like God has been just leading me step by step. And I've, I've gone through some real difficult times the last uh, 10 months. And uh, God has used that time to make me really think a lot about many different things and it, it's quite interesting because I began to think about finding and reaching out to a messianic uh, group and because I, I I've been a student of the Bible for many years and there have been just many things that didn't measure up uh, with what I had read in scripture uh, in, in each transition of my life and 
And even in the Adventist church, I acknowledged that there were some things there that just didn't seem to really match up with what I could see in the scriptures. And, right. and again, th these are the scriptures that, that I've been exposed to, which is um, uh, in, in listening to what you're saying, it's been, um, it's been great because I, I, I've read enough of, of the word of God that, that I can, and again, uh, Yahweh, <laughs> uh, that I'm going through a transition here. So if I, if I use terms that don't uh, align with uh, what uh, I, what they should be, well, then please forgive me in advance. But well, the pronunciation has to be done with a slight Hebrew accent, too. <clears throat> you, can't, you can't just pronounce it. You also have to have a slight accent. And okay. No and don't forget using an Irish accent either. Okay. Can I use a Spanish right accent? Can I use a Spanish <laughs> accent? Because I do speak Spanish fluently. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've, uh, but I feel really blessed to be here because I believe it's just another step in, in my my learning. I, I feel like that God has been giving me another piece to the puzzle just throughout my whole walk with with Him and. Um, well, uh, what did you say your name was again? My name is Brad. Brad, well, okay, let's, can we pray for you for just a second, Brad? Absolutely. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this brother, Brad, who has uh, joined us now here, Father. And uh, we want to pray in particular uh, about the difficulties he's been going through over the last 10 months, Father. We, we pray that, uh, that uh, you would be able to begin to sort his life uh, in an appropriate way to give him a... Um, a really a, a, a pillar of fire at night in the cloud during the day that he might be able to follow into your shalom and into your peace. Mm -hmm. And that you've got something really provided for him. That's going to, um, that's going to take his mind off these, uh, off these worries. And it's going to give him a, a, a soft landing place. Father, this is what we pray for. We pray also that this brother would be filled with your word that he's seeking you now with all his heart that you would give to him as he seeks father. And, um, and download the truth that he needs to hear. You know, we lift this to you in the name of Yahusha. Amen. Amen. And, and I, um, I really appreciate that prayer. And it really correlates with what, because during these months, I, I have walked with our creator at a much greater depth than I have uh, in my life. It's been really wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, I think about what you're saying about Martin Luther's concept of grace and, and my, my concept over these last 10 months have kind of transitioned a little bit where I, I believe that justification by faith is not a license to sin, but it is a license to walk once again with our creator in the garden. Yeah, amen. Amen. It's a, it's a license to be able to approach his throne with with uh, confidence and at the same time i think about the sabbath being its purpose is for our sanctification not salvation but sanctification and yeah sanctification is a great word right there and and i think about how um <coughs> really uh, eternal life is as as yeshua said in John 17, that we might know the only true and God and Yahshua, you know, and, and I think about 
you know, when we begin to realize and understand the character of God, then and his incredible love for us, then that's that he wanted to restore us to that garden experience of walking with him. Then all of a sudden, our misconceptions of God that kept us from him, that where we couldn't trust him. When we know who he is, we can trust him. And all of a sudden, that opens up a whole entire new uh, dimension of praise. And when we begin to praise him, then God begins to make us more like him from glory to glory. And what I've been experiencing the, during the last 10 months has been just a real depth, a deep level of praise to him because of who he is. And, and I, it, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. So I don't go to God like he's a Santa Claus, uh, to Yahweh. Here's my list of things I want. But I go to him just praising him or, or thanking him. And well, then hallelujah, upon, hallelujah. Upon thanking him, then I I enter into that praise. And you know, it's interesting when you think about neurologically what's happening. When you enter into praise, you enter in a state of producing dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that all right. Uh, now don't start getting into better living through chemistry here, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a biological function that our creator gave us to make us addicted to him. Yeah, amen. Amen. You know, I mean, it is a wonderful thing. I mean, when, when you get into that kind of thing, like when he puts you into this kind of a press, he does draw you closer to him. And, yes. and brother, you know, I can tell you, I'm gonna, I've got to keep moving on here because I'm going to run. Sure. Actually, I'm not going to run out of time. I'm going to run out of gas here because my jet lag's going to kick in. That's going to be it. I'm going to down sure, on the sure. pavement. But well, anyway, welcome to our group. Get Thank get you. the uh, get the sh the Shabbat link from Joni, so you can you know you can interface yes, you on your own channel, okay? And we'll look that forward will. to hearing from you again. All right. Amen. Thank you, brother. Okay. Take care, brother. Okay. Okay. Hey, Joni. All right. Thanks. Okay, Dale. What's up? Hey, Dr. B. Welcome back. Hey, Here good day. Nice sleep in your own bed. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. You raised the issue. Uh, all right. Uh, I got to tell you, man, we had some beds, you know, I don't know what it is. I think in Scotland, they think nobody's over six feet. <laughs> so the beds were six feet and less, you know, and then they put a two by four, or excuse me, a four by four at the end of the bed. So, you know, that there's, you know, this is a bed frame, right? We got a four by four at the end of the bed there. That is the end of the bed. Well, me and my feet did not agree with that bed frame at all. They have height restrictions there. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I guess I covered it. Yeah, so, so what's going on, Dale? Uh, welcome back. I just um, so I have the, the Yom Kodesh, and I was looking at the feast dates that are on the Sefer, and, and of course they, they cor correspond. And the nice thing about the Sefer for the or for the Yom, the Yom Kodesh is it has the Arif in there so that, that it starts at the evening to make it easier to figure out the dates. And so it shows that Sukkot starts this evening now rob sent out an update in uh, the telegram to show a day difference so from your perspective is it off a day and if so is the the 23 and 24 off a day so are you starting well, i want to invite i want to invite rob in i want to invite rob in on this conversation here yeah and so rob you're with us yep i'm here yeah so 
we, both Rob and I agree that the that the date begins with the dark moon, the the right. conjunction moon. That is the first day of the month, and so we had a discrepancy about when the dark moon had occurred. Isn't that in that right, Rob? What did you what did you show on the dark moon? Well, <clears throat> what I showed was uh, the last three dates on the Sefer calendar were um, showing the sundown time, not the daytime time, where the rest of the calendar was showing the days, but the last three dates were showing the evening time. So I went ahead and altered those numbers to reflect the day to be consistent with the rest of the calendar. Okay, so so what are we talking about in terms of days? Like, what, what have you got? Uh, what do you have marked for the beginning of Sukkot? Uh, the tenth, I believe. Tenth, yeah. But that would so start that would the be evening the before, evening starting the evening of the ninth. Yeah, the evening of the ninth yep. should be the beginning of Sukkot. So the the nice thing about the Yom Kadesh is that it shows the evening, which is what Rob is referring to, and it shows that it starts this evening. Is so so you're saying it's off a day. Yeah, it's the evening of the ninth. It's okay, the evening of the ninth. Yeah, and I apologize about the Yom Kadesh being off. You know, I can tell you that when we look at the we look at the dark moon, one of the calculations where I missed in the in the Yom Kadesh from some points, depending on whether the dark moon occurs before the evening or not. In other words, if you have a dark moon during the day, it's actually going to be reflective of the day before. Okay. So you know, so when we yeah, go, the conjunction was actually like four. Sorry, the conjunction was actually like four hours after sundown is why I made that adjustment. Yeah, yeah. So it was four hours after after sundown instead of before. So that's why it had to be adjusted. But let us not be stuck in uh, stuck in a trap where we got it wrong and we therefore we have to do it wrong. Let us instead engage in Sukkot on the evening of the ninth. Can now, you talk about that a little bit, Doctor. You, you live up in Canada or up in Alaska. What do you do for observance of the tabernacle with the Sukkot? I mean, you know, well, the, the tabernacle, tabernacle. I'll tell you. You know, one guy put it and he put it rightly. Where'd I go? Hello. One guy put it put it rightly that you know if you're not if your booth isn't correct, then it's no booth at all. Okay. I mean, that's just the way it is. And of course, the Torah provides that you're only supposed to do a booth if you're in the land. Okay. So if if you're in a group where you, where you guys are meeting, where people are pulling up their RVs, and I've been, I've been to a lot of Sukkot's where everybody pulls up in their RV. Some people have tents and so on and so forth. None of those are booths. None, none, none of those equal a booth, right? A booth has to be done a particular way with palm branches on top and so on and so forth. The idea of being in an RV at a campground for seven days, great vacation, but it's not, you know, it's not, you're not in a tabernacle. And so what I would suggest to you is this, that because you're not in a booth and because you're not in the land, now something to think about, and I was thinking about it the whole time we were in Britain, you know, do I need to be in the land? Do I need to be in the land? And I had a friend that was telling me, you need to come to Jerusalem, you need to be here, you know. And I suppose I really did need to be there, but, you know, I needed to be in a lot of places and I need to be home too, you know, and, and so I'm here. And so, you know, the practice of, of Sukkot is one of, you have to set aside the days. You have Shabbat at the beginning and you have Shabbat at the end. Those are set aside days, but it is seven days. This is not a, um, a, a feast of affliction or even a feast of fasting. This is a feast of rejoicing, Right. You're, you're wrapping up the Torah portion. This Yah is, tab, is tabernacling with us. In my opinion, 
the first day of tabernacles represents the day that the Mashiach was born. And he was in the seven days are, you know, Mary's a time of impurity. And then the eighth day, Simkatora, was when he was presented at the, at the temple. And so when you talk now, the Shemini Atzeret, the last great day, is particularly discussed in the New Testament. The Shemini Atzeret, it's discussed in the New Testament, the last great day it's referred to. And it's in the Gospel of John. And so as a consequence, the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast that is to be recognized by his people. There is a Sabbath at the beginning. There is a Sabbath at the end. And if you can join together in fellowship for this feast, do so. Now, if that means camping, if you want to go camping, then go camping. But that's not being in a tabernacle. Okay? That's not in a tabernacle. So if you are convicted in your heart that you really want to do tabernacles correct, well, then you need to think about making a trip to the land. You need okay. to think about being in the land. You know, I mean, there's three times a year the males are required to come up to Yerushalayim. And one of them is this feast. So, um, you know, give it some thought about if you've never done it in your life, you might want to think about when, when you're going to get to do it. And But I would say, generally speaking, in terms of the feast, it's a feast for seven days. Set yourself apart. Set yourself apart. Keep the Shabbat on the first day. Keep the Shabbat on the eighth day. And then I can tell you that when we, when we get into the eighth day, um, we're going to be starting the Torah portion anew, which means, guess what? I have some recordings done of the Torah portion. Okay. <laughs> I'm finally caught up <laughs> because we're starting all over again. But I am going to be I am going to be recording more Torah portion this year, and hopefully I'm going to be able to get through the whole of the Torah portion to have it all read, so that you guys will have a verbal record of the Torah portion that you can just listen to instead of having to read it, and you'd be able to you'd be able to pick it out. Okay. Very good. Now, one last one last question, Doctor P. When we pray, you pray with the hands raised or head bowed and hands folded. Well, it depends. It depends on what you want to do. I'm mean, telling you, there's times, man, when I just want to say hallelujah and just say hallelujah, you know. And you know, again, when you you know when you're praying, you know, a lot of this, you know, you you really need to pray from the heart. Okay. Now, yada is with the hands like this. Yada, this is to give thanks or to give praise to Yah. You know, to give thanks and praise Yada this way. But when you're saying hallelujah, I mean, the hands up in the air to say hallelujah, there's nothing wrong with that expression to say hallelujah in that respect. And then in your own prayers, you know, you know, if you're praying privately, I mean, you know, Paul and I were talking about this this week, you know, if you're praying privately, you know, there is something about praying in tongues, you know, there, it is a gift. It's not to be shared. I don't think you should be praying around other people in tongues. You know, I mean, if you're called to under, under certain exceptions where you're praying over somebody, it might, there might be an exception and there's an interpreter. But in, but in terms of praying in tongues, you know, you get out of your own way when you pray in, when you pray in tongues, you know, and I'm not talking about inventing a language or re repeating the same cycle babble over and over again, but letting the Ruach HaKodesh speak through you and to speak from the heart. And but but when you're talking about praying, I mean, look, just a simple prayer. We're not called the long prayers or elaborate prayers or even the recitation of prayers. You know, Mashiach gave us a model of a prayer, not the prayer. Okay, here's the model. Okay, oh, everybody repeat that word for word. No, it was a model prayer. And the model of the prayer was actually taken from First Chronicles 29, David's prayer. And in David's prayer, it's much more elaborate. The very same thing is being said, but it's much more elaborate. And of course. There's a conjunction from the Book of Jubilees that also finishes the prayer. 
And so as a consequence, you have a, you know, you have a, 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 a it's a model prayer. It begins with, and so what the prayer model is what? Number one, pray to the Father. What does Mashiach say? Here's how you pray. Our Father. You pray to the Father. That's premise number one. Premise number two, recognize his glorified name. Right? That's premise number two. Direct your prayer to the Father. Recognize his glorified name. Right? In heaven and on earth. But now people say, oh, well, you know, may your, may your, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You mean as above, so below? Well, that's basically what's in the concept, yes, because we do have things going on above in heaven, like the Shabbat, like the Ark of the Covenant, like praise and worship that's supposed to be done here on earth. And we also know that you don't have a bunch of strife and stuff happening in heaven that's happening here on earth that we'd like to get rid of. But then, of course, comes the doctrine of forgiveness. The doctrine of forgiveness. And, you know, when you want to talk about the daily bread, what is the daily bread if it's not the daily word, right? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. And so all of these doctrines are there, and then to clear your soul with by forgiving by forgiving those who have transgressed against you, that you too might be forgiven. Now, the last passage, when you're talking about lead us not into temptation, well, Yah isn't leading anybody into temptation. Yah doesn't lead anybody into temptation. There are other forces that are leading you into temptation, but it's not Yah. And of course, to be delivered from the evil one is an incredible to be delivered from evil is an incredibly important point. Because I'll tell you what, in the world we live right now. We live in the most corrupted world that has been seen since the Dark Ages. You know, oh, we think that, uh, you know, that you're not Catholic. Oh, no, I'm Catholic. Oh, no, we think you're not Catholic. Oh, no, I'm Catholic. Okay, we're taking you down the Inquisitor. We're going to bust open the roof of your mouth. We're going to hang you by your feet. We're going to stick you in that Iron Maiden until you confess that you're not Catholic. Well, I never said I was Catholic. Too late. You know, you've been accused. We have the same thing going on in our country right now, in our society right now. Once you get into the crosshairs, it's over for you. Whether you did it or not, it's irrelevant. And so, you know, uh, so we want to be protected from that. We want Yah's hand of protection over that. And then, of course, when you say, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I mean, you know, David goes on and on and on. Yours is the strength. Yours is the beauty. Yours is the mercy. I mean, he goes on and on and on in the, in the chapter 129. So anyway... What I would say to your prayers is let yourself go a little bit, Dale. Okay. Thank let you. Let yourself go. And let the Ruach, let the Ruach, let the Ruach come in and take over. Let not be your heart praying, but the Ruach praying within you, lifting that prayer. Okay. Thank you very much for clarifying all that. Welcome home. Hey, thank you, Dale. Hey, Rob, did you want to, you, you wanted to get in on this a little bit? I know you're chomping at the bit there. Hey, yeah, hey, Dr. B. Hold on just a second, Randall. So, go ahead, Rob. I want to hear from you. Oh, okay. Thought you had another Rob on there for a minute. <laughs> uh, well, I just saw that uh, I just saw that Paul had raised the question if this was a sabbatical year or when the sabbatical year was, and I know we both had agreed on it in the past, and I lost track, and I didn't have an answer for him on the suffer site, and I see I believe he's answered or asked again, and just wanted to clarify that for him. Well, I thought this the the sabbatical year was uh, 2017 and then 2024. That's my take on the sabbatical year. That's what I believe is going to be the sabbatical year. All 
and and the the Shemitah is another story. Yeah, I was going to put a, a Shemitah at the beginning on the sixth year, and then make it a Shemitah on the seventh, and then make it a Shemitah on the eighth, which allows me to encompass a lot of prophecy in my in my narrative. <laughs> John got John got that. John got that. Yeah. But instead, I'll stick to one one Shemitah when we get to it, right? Okay. But but thank you, Rob. Anything else you wanted to throw in there, brother? Uh, there's always something I want to throw in, and I don't have patience to throw my hand up and wait forever, but you know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, brother. You know, I wish we had a no different problem. format going on because, you know, I mean, the hands up and stuff is kind of difficult, you know, because I mean, what other order do I have to do but that, you know, but that go down the yeah. order, you know, first come first serve, right? I guess. I don't know. I mean, you know, just I suppose so many things on the edge of my mind, just ready to fly off. And, you know, and if you go so many subjects along, oh, I right. lose it. I'm like pan down or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we need to have you listen, Rob, change your hand color over to red. That way I'll know you're yeah. from the rock, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Caught red-handed. <laughs> oh, no, it's an emergency. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Rob. Okay. Hey, John, what's up? Uh, well, I'm going back a long ways. Randall, did you have something you wanted to add quick or not? Well, um, somebody had asked a question in the chat about what's, what scripture – uh talks about the dark moon i think rosa has the 81 3 and i don't think anybody had uh answered her in the chat so i just thought i would throw it up there okay i'll, I'll get it it's psalm 81 3 i know it was a psalm there's just, more too there's enoch there's psalms there's a lot to it there's now you're talking. at least yeah i know enoch has got enoch talks about it too about the dark moon you know the thing is i'll just I'm just share it real quick okay let me go let me hang on just a second john i want to go whiteboard here and i'll show you because when you talk when you when we talk about this thing you've got you got two choices okay you've got full moon and you got dark moon okay now this is called the conjunction and it lasts for about 3.5 hours sometimes a little longer sometimes a little shorter that's basically it this on the other hand this is called the opposition and this can last up to three days it lasts up to three days the full moon okay so, as you can see, the problem with this moon here, there's a problem with this moon. Anybody could readily see, which is that it's a little out of round, okay? And then this one's a little out of round, too. This is because of a gravitational pull that was happening here. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Anyway, the fact that the conjunction is this sharp allows us to have a marked point that says this is the beginning of the month, not here. Now, one thing that you don't see is you don't see Rabbi mentioned anywhere in Genesis 1, or for that matter, anywhere in the Old Testament. Well, there's no month until Rabbi Schneerson sees it. 
No. The, the, the script proves and shows that this is the covered moon. And the covered moon is therefore going to be what? The covered moon is the dark moon, which is the conjunction, which is the marker of the beginning of the month. Now, with that being said, let's stop that share. Stop it. Stop it. Okay. Okay. I can't find what I'm looking for, which is eSword. But I'll open up eSword and I'll show you the passage in particular. Now, because when we talk about this passage, again, Strong's is not going to tell you the, the truth. Whenever you have something where you have one word, oh, this appears one time in Scripture. Well, wait a minute. What are you talking about one time in Scripture? Okay, so um, let me share this passage. I'm going to come in here and share it here. We're going to eSword here. Okay. And let's drop into Psalm. And, of course, 81 is a very significant psalm and very important. But if we look at 81.3, yeah, here it is. Now, it's 81.4 here in the Hebrew because they have this stuff about David's psalm here. But you're going to see this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Psalm means dark, hidden. Um, not revealed, not seen, the much, all, all 172 or whatever times in Scripture, and then the, the two times we're supposed to believe it means the opposite? Yeah. Yeah, right. A root right. can't be the opposite of, of, of the, the word presented. That's just not right. Yeah, and this, this is what we get. So here we see, and now they say this is taka, but this is takia, right? Chad taka, which, you know, takia is the form of the hornblow, right? The takia is, is a certain uh, blasting, Okay. Tekiah, okay, then Chodesh. Now, again, Ba Chodesh. You see, okay, now if you guys look, um, here, let me circle it and then maybe you can see it here, I hope. Um, if you look at this uh, uh, Chodesh here, okay, right here. Oh, I blew it. Let me try it again here. In the month. Bahodesh. There we go. So you see Bahodesh. This Ba is the is the prefix. And then you have Chodesh. Well, let's take a look at this for a second and see what we have. So we talk about Chodesh. So Chodesh, the new moon. Now people will jump up and down about this. Oh, it doesn't mean moon because the word for moon is Yiriak. Well, that's true. The word for moon is Yiriak. But we're not dealing with the moon here. We're dealing with the moon cycle. We're dealing with the moon cycle. Now, so this says the new moon. Okay, so if you say new moon, what does this mean? Well, that means that the moon that we have in the sky right now, it's broken up, busted into particles, shipped out, and then they ship in a new moon next month, right? No, no. It means a cycle. It's a cycle, right? Chodesh, it's a cycle. Well, what does that come from? Well, that comes from the word. You can see it right here. Hold on. Come on. Let's try it again. Chadash. Now, this is the word when we say Brit Chadasha. Chadash. To be new. Causatively, to rebuild, i.e., renew. Renew, repair, recycle, 
So we talk about Kodesh, you're talking about a cycle. You're not talking about the moon per se, but rather the cycle of the moon. And the cycle of the moon going from what? Full moon to full moon? Like they try to tell you is the correct pronunciation in here? No. Okay, here's your shofar. Tekiah, blow your shofar. Blow your shofar. Bachodesh, in the month, right? Cheseh. Now, when you get here, this says, oh, this is fullness or full moon. How'd they get full moon out of that? How'd they get full moon out of that? Well, apparently, this is from H3680. Okay. Now, I want you to take a look at this, guys. Okay. Because we're going to, you're going to see here why this is why the interpreters get, a, you know, an F minus on this word. If you see, look. Okay. So we have cough. Then we have Samic, right? And then we have, in this particular case, we either have an Aleph or we have a He. Hold on. Yeah. All right. So let's put the He in here. He. Okay. So this is Keset, according to them. Unless you go to the root, in which case it's kasa. Do you see a difference in the spelling there? Kav samake? No. Kav samake. Oh, well, we put a different vowel pointer in there. Well, you might have put a different vowel pointer in there so that you can get what? Full moon in this passage. But what does it say here for kasa? a primitive root properly to plump, that is to fill up hollows, by implication to cover for clothing or secrecy, clad, clothes, clothe, conceal, cover, overwhelm. You see that? Veiled. And so what you're talking about is the word means covered moon, not full moon. Not full moon. Okay. And not crescent. That's Sharonim. That's like a that's like a heathen trinket. Yeah, and the crescent moon also, I mean, well, the month begins when the rabbi sees the moon. No. No, there's no rabbi anywhere. Okay. And then and then so then what do we find out? Why is do we know this is the first of the month? Because here we see you know Takia. Takia ba Chodesh in the month. Shofar, blow the shofar, blow the tekiah in the shofar at, in the month. When? Ba kasa. In its covering, layom chagnu of our high feast. Chagnu, our high feast. See? Okay, so what high feast do you have that begins the month? Teruah. Yeah, it's Yom Teruah, which interestingly enough is met by a feast of trumpets, shofars, who are going to be blasting at the Kia. When do they blast at the Kia on a shofar at the on a festival, a Chag? Well, well, that would be Yom Teruah. That would be the beginning of the month, first of the month, which is marked with a dark moon. Okay, Psalm eighty-one three. That's why the passage we believe shows, shows the dark moon is visible to the naked eye, 
Well, that's the whole point about it, Vern, is that it's not and visible to the naked eye. Yeah, and go ahead, Rob. Point, Pigeon, that, that we both discussed, that it, it wasn't the next day or leading up to the next day, but on the exact day of that conjunction. And that is an actual moment. What we see and don't see is another point, but the conjunction only happens for a split second. It is exact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that gives you a moment, and, and and it's not like a full moon that is visible for sometimes two or three days. This is a particular moment of the conjunction, and that's why it's a very strong marker. And again, you know, we talked about this extensively because when I was in Britain, everybody was on a different calendar. Uh, I mean, everybody, I mean, even guys that agree with each other were on a different calendar. Um, but, but, but what we find is this, is that, you know, the calendar I like to follow is what I call the Genesis 114 calendar. It's done with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And that's what we're called to do on the Genesis 1.14. And it's not a 360-day calendar with a five-and-a-half-day leap year or a 364-day calendar with a 1.25-day leap. But rather, it is a natural calendar that is dependent upon the moon cycle for the month and that resets in accordance with the solar cycle once a year. Resets in accordance with the vernal equinox once a year but it's predicated upon a moon cycle. And, if, and you'll find that when you follow that calendar, when you follow that calendar, number one, your agricultural cycles are very, very powerful and very strong because you know what you're doing. Number two, your body rhythms are completely in junction with the moon. And as a consequence, you're celebrating your, the way your body lives in accordance with the way the calendar goes. That's another important aspect to it. And it's also... Any other calendar you deal with, if you deal with the 364-day calendar that's 30, 30, 31, or you deal with the 360-day calendar, which is 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, or you deal with the Gregorian calendar, you better have you better have it in writing and have it up on the fridge because you're not going to be able to find the, the day. I mean, after you get, when you get 30 days down the road, well, what's, what day is it now? Well, uh, it's the first. How do you know? Well, we counted 30. I've got my little dashes over here, right? That's what you're going to have to do because it's not natural. Whereas on the other hand, if you're following the natural calendar, I can look up in the sky and I can see a quarter moon. And if I know it's waxing, then I can tell you it's the seventh of the month. If I know it's waning, I can tell you it's the 22nd of the month. I can tell you just by looking at the moon and knowing whether or not it's waxing or waning, which you can tell by whether or not the right-hand side of the moon is lit up, in which case it's waxing, or the left-hand side of the moon is lit up, in which case it's waning, you can tell what day of the month it is. So you can tell the first day of the month, you can tell the 15th day of the month, you can tell every other day of the month. And if you know the natural calendar, you can look up the stars and tell what time it is at night, too. Did you know that? You think, well, well if the sun's down, I can't tell what time it is. Yes, you can. If you know the constellations and you know their patterns, you can look up in the heavens and tell what time it is by looking at the stars. So you see that it's all there. So you don't need a rabbi. You don't need a calendar. You don't need Pope Gregory. You don't need anything. You can just look out. <laughs> hey, get, get Gregory on the line. I need to talk to him. What day is this again? You don't need any of that. You know, and then if you, and then the only discrepancy is with the sundial, right? Now, you know, it's very interesting because I picked up a book again in Norwich that talks about the calendar. And this guy goes, and this is a book published in the, I don't know, 1850s, I think. He goes on and on and on and on about the calendar. And he starts with the sundial, right? And he talks about the different, the histories of the different calendars and who was doing what. 
I mean, there was a time when they were trying to impose a, I don't know, a 250 day calendar or something like this. The Romans had some really weird stuff. Like we're going to count the summer and that everybody just, you know, going on employment for the winter, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what they did, but, but uh, you know, they only had this short period at the window that they counted as the calendar. Now, this guy documents it in the book. I just haven't pulled the book back out since I got home, but, um, but at any rate, the natural calendar is the easiest one to know. You can know it, you can see it, you can calculate it, it, and it's with you every day, and you don't need to have anything in writing. You can just look up the heavens and tell where you are. All you have to remember, really, is the equinox. That's all you have. And even that is a giveaway. If you know Virgo, you know the, the, the constellation Virgo, and in her left hand is the barley sheaf. Spica is the star that's in her left hand. And when Spica, when you can see Spica, guess what? You're between the vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox in the northern hemisphere. That's why you can see Spica. When you can't see Spica, you're you're in a different you're you're in the period between the autumnal equinox and the vernal equinox. That's simple. That's what Moses been saying when the barley's in Aviv. That is to say, Spica, barley in her hand, in her left hand, is above the horizon. You can see it. And that tells you that that's the beginning of the first month of the year. Doesn't say you calculate it from that. It says that marker is going to happen in the first month of the year. So anyway, we'll get we'll get back into that later. Anyway, so you guys, you know, everybody knows when Sukkot is, and we're all going to be tabernacling with Monte Judah in Oklahoma. But no, we're not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're actually going to be we're going to be meeting together with our group for the feast and, and uh, sit down and talk about it. So we got a lot of a lot to work on since I got home. Okay, Stuart, how are you, brother? What's going on? Stuart, there you are. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's just your question. You asked the question, didn't you? Uh, we talked about the remnant, and David was talking about the remnant. And it shows you the remnant. It is a very, very small part because that scripture in Isaiah that, that goes, um, Isaiah 5, take a razor, and you know, you know it well. But the bottom part of it, gather a small part in your in your skirts. You know, it shows you it is a, it really is that remnant. I'm trying to find... Um, where is it? Sorry, go back. Um, in Isaiah, um, sorry, Ezekiel 5, a bigger one. Ezekiel 5. Oh, Ezekiel 5. Yeah, sorry, I've lost my, I've touched my, my thing in my uh, phone's gone off. But one second. Here we go. Yeah, you should, Ezekiel 5. You should, you should take them a few in number and buy them in your skirts. Yeah, it really is a small yeah. amount, amount of people that have the name. Yeah, hey, well, you have to remember that the first remnant, during the flood was eight people. Yeah. 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 And so this remnant is going to be hopefully a little larger than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is. It's the it's the ones that have the name, isn't it? We're yeah. very privileged to have that name. Well, we're blessed, I think is the better word. We're, we're blessed to have blessed. the name. Yah would show us the name and that Yah would, would uh present it yeah. to us and that he would give us the ears to hear it. It's the oil. It really yeah. is the oil. It really is. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that, Stuart. No Appreciate that. Yeah, I tried to go back. Okay, anyway. Okay, all right. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Karen, uh, is it Karen? Are you there, Karen? Lahote? Is that Karen? Hi, Dr. P. Yes, Lahote. Oh, it is you. Okay, there you are. Okay, what's yeah. going on? Welcome back, Dr. P. Thank uh, you. I may have missed this before because I stepped out. I won't ask you to repeat the whole thing, but when Catherine mentioned... Uh, studying um, King Arthur in uh, 
well, I know it was mythology, but where do we where do we start studying the the the, the truthful manuscripts? Is that some of the Alan Wilson books or where Alan would you Wilson start? and Byron Blackett are a good source? I mean, look, I'm not going to say they're 100 percent truthful. They do it, but right. they're they're more accurate than anything else. I mean, you know, there's a lot to study, and of course. Um, uh, you know, we're trying to piece together what we can in terms of the history, you know, like on ancient days, I'm going to get back into ancient days now that I'm, I'm finally home and not teaching at midnight. Uh, and uh, so ancient days, we're going to be looking at some of these things. And again, you know, this is one of the things uh, that when I go in looking, Karen, I, I look for stuff that's, you know, that's uh, kind of obvious, but people wouldn't be looking for it at all. Like I'll give me an example. When we walk into York Minster, they had the statuary of 15 kings up there in York Minster. Now, these statues go back to Henry III. So you're talking about statues that were completed before the year 1500. So these statues were created from memory of how these kings looked. And I can tell you, when you look at William the Conqueror and King Edward I, Second, Third, uh, and their bloodline, you know, you see guys with major afros with crowns on their head. That's mm -hmm. what you see. And uh, which this comes from a true record of that day. So, you know, you have to look and see what you can see. Don't just, uh, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you don't want to just avoid the obvious. Like, for instance, when you come up to York Minster and you see a statue of Constantine in the front, then you can conclude that it's widely accepted in York that Constantine was, in fact, born in York. It's generally widely accepted. We don't have to look to a book to see it. When you see, when I saw the painting of uh, Judith with the head of Holofernes uh, in the collection that belonged to George IV, that tells me that George IV accepted that as a true narrative and could put a painting up in the public gallery that said this apocryphal story is true and widely accepted. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what you see. You know, mm -hmm. and so this is why, you know, looking at some of these artifacts is more than just, you know, reading somebody's opinion about it. Because when you, when you get to the bottom line of it, you know, you get to, you know, Gildas and the honorable or the venerable Bede. You know, Gildas was like sixth century and uh, Bede was like seventh century. And these guys are some of the earliest historians in Britain. Well, what about the history before that? Well, there is a history before that. But you have to piece it together a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit there. And most of the record, for instance, in um, most of the record that is found between the between the year one and the year 670 is Roman record. It's Roman record. And we're going to be we're going to be publishing mm -hmm. some of those books, too, because the Romans go in and talk about these guys, about all the record about Caractacus and or Caradoc. And his family, which is all set forth in Second Timothy and in Romans. I mean, these guys are all named, right? In the New Testament, they're also named in the Roman record. When you talk about the house of Claudius and all these people, well, they're named in the, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament and they're named in the Roman record. And the Roman record tells us who, who they were. And now we're beginning to piece it all together. We're beginning to piece together who was who and who did what, where, when, and how. And what we're finding is, yeah, there was a King Arthur. There was a King Arthur in the 300s. There was a King Arthur in the 500s, King Arthur II in the 500s. Uh, we also know the interface. Now we're beginning to piece together the interface between Britain and Rome. Why is that a question? 
because the faith started in Britain in 36 AD and did not start in Rome until 325 AD. That's a 300 year gap. What happened in this 300 years? How was the faith practiced? Who did it? Who were the bishops? Where was it? What was going on, right? And, and all of that becomes even more important when you start to see the overlap with the Druids into the faith. Now, this is something I was reading about in one of these books as well when I was, that I found in one of these libraries. I mean, you know, here we walk into this. We walked into this, uh, this bookstore. I guess it was in York. It was in York. We walked into this bookstore and it was, you know, it wasn't big enough for five people to stand in the same room together, right? So we're all kind of crammed in there like this. <laughs> but it had seven floors. Oh, my goodness. You could go down two and you could go up five. And you go up the staircase and you go into another room that's that small. Then you go up the staircase, go into another room that's that small. And at the at the little, you know, the staircase where it goes halfway up and then the other half, they'd have a whole set of shelves with books on it. So we were able to go in there and just, you know, you know, spend hours in there going through these texts to see what we what we could find, right? And we found a whole bunch of stuff uh, on these records of uh, what took place uh, during this period of time. Now, there is a pretty good record about the Druids and them meeting Paul and what the interface was like, what the, you know, because the Druids completely changed in the 1700s. What the Druids were at the time that Paul came into Britain, completely different than who the Druids were in 1700 when they started wearing the laurel wreath and running around in their white robes and going, you know, chant, the trees are good, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. This this was not the Druidic practice in, in the ancient times. And in fact, these ancient history books corroborated the fact that the Druid practice was consistent with the Hebrew practice because they identified themselves as Hebrews, in particular from the house of Zarak, as Jews, the Druids did. But they did not have the benefit of Moshe's Torah because they had left before Moshe's Torah. And so this is why when, when you see this, so, so when Acts 29 talks about Paul running into the Druids and giving them the kiss of peace, he wasn't running into a bunch of New Age witchcraft posers pretending to be Druids. Right. Cool. He ran yeah. into the actual Druids where it took 20 years of study to become an arch Druid. Mm -hmm. Cool. Right? Yeah. That so I mean, I'm going to try to get out as much stuff as I can. I mean, you know, obviously this is a lifetime of research and we're doing, you know, uh, we're doing a few minutes. But, you know, we'll get right. out what we can. Excellent. Okay? Welcome back. And um, I have one idea real quick for how you can answer your questions. Just do it the welcome back. Remember, uh, welcome back, Cotter? Oh, yeah. And, welcome uh, back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we'll just do the Arnold Horshack hand. Mr. Pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. Thanks, Dr. P. Shabbat Shalom. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Okay. Hey, John, how are you? Hey, Doc. Welcome back to North America. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thank you. My question or uh, observation is about uh, another about Sukkot. And uh, I was just studying in about Sukkot because it's coming up. And my observation was that Abraham was the first to keep Sukkot. You know, he made Sukkot for his animals and his people and says in jubilees that he was the first to keep keep sukkot you know and then it says let that be a perpetual thing you know for all generations for yasharel 
going back to the same point that we're on a lot that who is Yasharel, right? And I believe that we are Yasharel. We are. Whether that's Yasharel born or what, I believe that we've been born again into Yasharel. So to me, the building of the Sukkot is almost like a baking of unleavened bread. For seven days, you do this during this feast as almost a teaching tool or something to remember by, you know, something that we can teach our children, you know, in, in, you know, because it says at the end in Deuteronomy and such, you know, do this to remember what you did when we brought you, when I brought you out of Egypt, you know, you lived in Sukkot. So build these booths to remember, you know, it's just like, all part of that holy convocation thing. Yeah, to and me, all that, that I think all of that, yeah, and you know what, John, I mean, all that is fine, but just keep in mind that when you're building that, you know, when you're building that booth, which is, you're right, it is a rehearsal, right? And all the trappings that go with it, but just keep in mind that from uh, from a, uh, a scriptural point of view, it's not the same as being in the land and, and, being, and dwelling in the booth. Right. And well, that's the other thing that takes you deeper into it. You know, we dwell, you know, we're not, not dwelling in the land for any of these things. Should we be, like you said earlier, should we all be going back to Yerushalayim? Maybe, I don't know. But Abraham, he wasn't, there wasn't even a Yasharel yet when Abraham kept Sukkot, you know, he started. You th you're, Sukkot, thinking of, you're thinking of Noah. You're thinking of Noah. Noah was the one. No, that did it. no, it says it says uh, in Jubilees, I believe it's uh, Ju Jubilees sixteen twenty one. Oh, okay. That Abraham was the first. Says okay, he was the first. In in verse twenty, it says he built there an altar to Yahweh, who had delivered him and who was making him rejoice in the land. Yeah, there of the it soldier. is. I see it. They yeah. celebrated a feast of joy in this month, seven days, near the altar, which he had built at the well of the oath. And he built Sukkot for himself and for his servants on this feast. And he was the first to celebrate the feast of Sukkot on the earth. And then it goes on to say, and this, and to this there is no limit of days, for it is ordained forever regarding Yasharel that they should celebrate it and dwell in Sukkot and set reefs upon their heads and take leafy bows and willows from the brook. You know, so it's establishing that even before Moshe and all of these things, even before they came out of Yashara or came out of Mitzrayim, you know, so. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me, here it's, too, John? It's, in, in it's like one of those teaching tools, you know? Yeah, in, in 25. In, in 1625, it says, and he celebrated this feast during the seven days, rejoicing with all his heart and with all his soul. That's a big part of this feast. He and all those who were in his house, and there was no stranger with him, nor any that was uncircumcised. Well, don't worry about the circumcision part, right? right. But look at 24. And morning and evening. Well, circumcised in the heart. Circumcised in the heart. Yeah, amen. But bingo. Bingo. Yeah. In morning and evening, he burnt fragrant substances, frankincense, galbanum, and stacti, and nard, and myrrh, and spice, and costume. And all these seven he offered, you know, again, seven, seven 
uh, different incenses, right? All these he right. offered crushed, mixed together in equal parts and pure, right? I mean, it's interesting that, you know, and again, you know, we talk about the, you know, the, the animal offering. You know, there is no animal offering. There is no animal offering anymore. You know, with right. Shiites, that there is no animal offering. And when we, but when we deal with this idea of this burnt offering, I mean, it's up to you guys to think about it. But this, in terms of mixing the spices and so on and so forth, a lot of you are into essential oils. You may have some of these things around, you know. But at any rate, the whole point of this feast is to rejoice for seven days. Okay? Right. That's what I the agree. feast is 100%. all about. percent Yeah. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. I, but, I'm just saying, the building of the Sukkot, to me, whether you do it or not, I don't think that it's necessarily essential. But if you do do it, I believe that Yah was giving it to us as a tool to explain what what it's about you know and and as remembrance you know because yahusha was born in a sukkah you know yeah amen joseph probably built that sukkah for the feast of tabernacles or for for the feast of sukkah you know so not only are we celebrating the feast of sukkah but we're celebrating the birth of messiah also and it's all kind of in teaching your children teaching people letting it be it be an example you know I think that's why I said, hey, build them, build them out in the street, build them on your roof, build them out here, wherever, you know, just put okay, up a you, remembrance. You, you've talked me right you know? into it. Of course, I mean, the difference in my suki is I have to use spruce bough, you know. Right. You might not. I got plenty of palm down here. So yeah, I, I don't want to hear about it, John. I don't want to hear about it. No, I think it's That's all I was What's that, Rob? About the sacrifices? Oh, I was just wanting to kick in a comment about the sacrifices there you were yeah, talking yeah. about there. Um, well, um, I look at it like it's a commandment. So you do it. Whether you want to call it a barbecue or not, whether you want to call it a sin offering or not, it's commanded you do it. That's kind of how I see it. I don't know. That may be too simplistic. And it says throughout all the generations, but I take him for his word, you know. And I know that's just on the Sukkot specifically, it's just for the people in the land. I realize that, so that doesn't really uh, apply to us all. It's not beating us over the head. You have to do this if you're not in Israel. But uh, as far as having a, a what you would call a barbecue, I, I, I fellowship with the Father. I feel the Ruach, and it's wonderful sitting down and eating a piece of lamb with my meal or whatever it is, you know. And some yeah, people might be aghast to think of that, but I, I'm, it's not in my mind, it's not in my heart to go, well, that's a replacement of my sin offering or anything. That's just my meal that I'm commanded to make and enjoy. Oh, yeah, okay. All right, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear what you're talking about. It's a celebration. So I think the whole thing is about the celebration, you know. Yeah. He's teaching us how to celebrate, right? We, we've decided we're going to keep these feasts and and it's all part of his sevenfold doctrine, you know. So he's told us how to do it, just like he's told us how to love him, right? He's told us how to do these things. So he maps it out to us. This is how you do it, okay? So you're not out there wondering, oh, I'm going to do it like this. I'm going to put up a Christmas tree or whatever. No, this is how you do it. This is how you celebrate it. This is how you keep it, you know. Okay, so if I've got you right here, then Shabbat it just means um, two steaks, two pork chops, 
seven lamb stews. <laughs> I follow you. I follow you guys a couple couple of burgers here. <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, good word, Rob. Good and good word, John. I mean, that's really good. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brothers are here for this to bring joy into this into this uh, uh, into this particular feast. You know, because it is a joyful feast and it's the time for us to be to be praising and to be singing and to be thankful for the provision that Yah has given us this year, you know, to lift up his name again and to say, yeah, you know, through this, through that, through the other thing, you gave us a great year. You've given us so much. And for us to take the time to just be thankful, right? Stop complaining for a few minutes, be thankful what he's done and to celebrate Take seven days to celebrate. Good word. Thanks, both of you guys. I really appreciate that. Amen. Thanks, John. Okay. All right. iPhone, have you got you got something left you want to add to this equation? There, I can't hear you. You I can't hear you. Sorry. Okay, just a couple things. One, uh, we were talking about uh King Arthur. And in yeah. the Colbrin, there is a king on there and um a woman that I believe is a Guinevere. King Arthur and Guinevere, do you remember reading that story in there? And also uh, the sword and the stone? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't remember reading that, actually. But it's in the Colburn. So I didn't know if that was... Yep, it's in the Colburn. Uh, the name's a little bit different. And that, I noticed that it might be her, because if you look at pictures painted of her, she has red hair, and she has red hair in the Colburn. Ah, interesting. And, um, yeah, fantastic. So if you come across that, if anybody wants to research that, that was pretty cool. I do love the Colburn. It's amazing. Um, and thank you for introducing me to that. I appreciate it. Um, well, it's a also, good historical read. Remember that we read a lot of stuff. You know, you know, keep in mind, I'm not a, I'm not a book burner, okay? I believe that a person should read and then use discernment. And then, you know, because, listen, I've read a lot of stuff. Has my faith diminished because I read Les Miserables or because I read, uh, you know, uh, uh, the book Kidnapped or something? No, it, it, my faith hasn't diminished. And when I read a historical book, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing scriptural about it. But there is history there. And you have to, you, of course, you have to read with discernment, but it's worth gleaning to see what other people have read. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's interesting finding second witness to it too over and over. Um, but I, I know this probably doesn't interest anybody, but um, we had a gentleman earlier that talked about a dream in, in December of last year. I told everybody um, when I was visiting with you on Shabbat that I was woken up in the middle of the night to sit up and I could see 11, 11 just would be a digital phone. And um, so I've always wondered if this is what we're coming to, but on Tuesday, I lost my job for being a truth teller, and um, they didn't like doing business with that company that long, because um, I left the oil. I was selling um, ExxonMobil, but left there. And so I had a dream then, and I dreamt that other people were harvesting and farming my fruit, and the fruit was like big as car tractors. And um, even the person who lived in my home, uh, I just seen it and I was sad. And then they gave me a cantaloupe and that cantaloupe, I could not figure it out for a long time what it meant. And I was talking to Abba about it. And, and it was just like, I got to keep 
searching. And I know that's what he wants us to do is pursue him. And I believe that works is our pursuit. And I just looked it up. I just finally looked it up. Okay, what does it mean to have a cantaloupe in your dream? And it says stating the old era dream meaning of cantaloupe is certain Um, certain certain things will happen soon. This comes in the image of a previous dream, and I'm like, well, I know it's close. They burnt, you know, they just blew up the bridge, the second pipeline for Russia. But I keep, you know, seeing 1111, and I'm just like, is he telling me that already? So I don't know. I just want yeah. to share that. No, yeah, I've heard a lot about 1111. I've heard that from a number of different sources about 1111. And all I can tell you is that when we when we were in Britain, one of our traveling partners was okay the, the 20th of september it's dropped dead we're, it's over if we if we haven't left britain by then we're going to be stuck there and then of course the 20th came and went and then uh the 21st that's going to be a banking holiday the bank's going to be closed and we won't have any access to any money and what are we going to do we're going to be homeless the 21st came and went the 24th is the end of it so i so anyway she got on the plane and went home on the 23rd and we went well uh, and so I looked at, I looked at Paul, you know, and of course, Stephanie, you know, her faith is just like, just blind, you know, just like, oh, well, we're just doing this, you know, whatever, whatever y'all wants, that's what we're going to do. And I looked at Paul and I said, you know, Paul, the, the exciting thing about this is we get to trust in Yah. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we get to trust. We get to just say, okay, take it away, Yah, whatever you want to do and however you want to do it. You know, we were, we were, um, last night we were staying at uh, uh, Stephanie's cousin's house and they were looking at the family history, right? And Stephanie's grandfather, her grandfather, no, yeah, Stephanie's grandfather had been a sickly child. And so his parents who were living in England said, you know, we want to get you out of here. We want to take you to Canada. So they, they made a trip. They got on a boat and they made a trip to Canada. And they were just taking him over to Canada to see if he could find a place where he could land and be healthy. Well, when they got there, the war broke out. World War I broke out. And they were stuck there for seven years, right? And I'm thinking, well, you know, you never can tell. We might be stuck here in Britain if the war breaks out, you know, depending on, depending on which spot gets nuked, right? But, but nonetheless, regardless, regardless of what happened, we had to trust in Yah. We had to trust in what he was doing and trust in what he was, and, and how he was going to provide. And you know what? It was fantastic. He gave us, he gave us just a fantastic trip. And then he gave us perfectly safe, best flight home we've ever had. It was just great. And so, awesome. you know, I'm very thankful. And I'm going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles this year with great joy. Me too. Well, thank and, you. And who knows? I might even throw up a suka now that John's talking into it. Because because guess what? I've got a little, all this wood lying around in my front yard. So <laughs> I just might do it. Okay, guys. All right. Raina, did you want to add something in here? Thanks, Dr. Raina. P. John, hey, John Kalb had his hand up while he was. What happened? Remember you then you went to Yeah, I don't know what happened to him. Okay. I don't see him. I think I think he I think he must have had to run. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry to lose him. I guess John got tired of waiting. Okay. Uh, sorry about that, Raina. Well, anyway, all right, John. 
I know he's going to be doing a show, I think, Monday. He's got something coming up. Okay, here we go. Spring equinox, you count forward 70 moon cycles. 28th day of that seven-month new moon cycles. Panic bottom 29, 90, 97, 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should have had a panic this year, but we didn't. So everything's good. Okay, guys. So that is going to conclude our Shabbat for the day. And I'm going to take my tired self. Yes. That's okay. That's what, Did you want to say something, Rob? Rob, do you want oh, to answer? I kind of did, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, I wanted to get back to one topic you brought up earlier about uh, determining the new year by equinox. I would like oh, yeah. to okay. show us. Because my understanding is it's um, in the first month of Abib, which Abib is referring to the growth cycle of the corn in the golden stages. Um, so I don't really know how anybody could... A lot of people, even myself, I used to go by Equinox for the new year. And usually you land at the right time, you know, but when you go by barley, sometimes it's a little different. And I was just well, the, how you my only problem with barley is this is that you got to remember with barley, you can plant it anytime you want. And if somebody plants it a month early, then it ripens a month early. Anyway, we'll have to leave that for another for another topic. Because once we crack open the nut on calendar, we're going to be here for a while. Right. Well, that was just a small thing because, you know, uh, Takufa was the only thing that anybody ever came close to coming up with a... Uh, yeah, Takufa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Paul was talking about it. A lot of guys are, you know, uh, are big on Takufa, you know. And of course, depending on... And then once you find the Takufa, now what? Is it before, after? You it's start to count there. The solar cycle back to square root A. Yeah, yeah, it can. But keep in mind that in Genesis 1.14, it says the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? The greater light, the lesser light, and well, also the stars. The stars also, right? The stars yeah, like also, yeah. Kind of an add -on. yeah. Yeah, the stars also, yeah. Anyway, all right, we'll leave it at that point. Okay, guys. Okay. So anyway, have a blessed Thanks Sukkot, everybody. And then when we get into Shemini Atzeret, uh, then we begin the Torah, the Torah portion anew. And so you will be able to access audio recordings, at least for a few weeks, <laughs> until I can catch up on the rest of them. Okay? All right. So I've been Corey. Blessings, you guys. So thank you for, for hosting us in Ireland. It was greatly appreciated. You're so welcome. All right. Shabbat shalom to pigeon. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hey, thank you guys. Good to see you guys. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. John Kalb, if you run into him. Shabbat shalom. Hey, I hear somebody below the show far. Who's going to get there? Shabbat shalom. I got my new Jesus boat horn. <laughs> Somebody asked if there are meetings during Sukkot. Are there going to be any meetings? Oh yeah, sure. We'll keep we'll keep running going. We're, we're not going to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With the, the Sabbath days will be breaking. On the Sabbath day, there will not be. But on the but, on, but during the regular Sukkot, there will be. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We can. All right. Shabbat shalom, guys. We'll see you later. I meant, I meant like that we can attend. Like, are you going to have any kind of, or are there people within the group? 
Yeah, we're going to be up here in Wasilla, Elizabeth. So if, once you can get up here, we're going up to Houston, and we're going to and we're, going to be, <laughs> we're going to be hanging out on the Little Susitna River. That's not what I meant. <laughs> I meant our other people in our group potentially getting together on a Zoom or something. You know, oh, just for, to for all seven days of Tabernacles. Hmm. For some of you know, like a certain time of night or or day or something. Uh, I haven't scheduled. Okay, let me pray over that. Okay. I'll, okay. I'll let you know. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks. Okay. All right. Show it to them. Okay. Bye, guys.